The intermediate line advises a language and concept warning for the entire show. Hey, this is Shane, or as I go by on the Instagrams, Gippsland Fly Fisher, coming to you from sunny West Gippsland in Victoria. Now I'm actually full of shit. It is freezing cold, bucketing with rain, and not far from my house up on the little hill is a fair bit of snow coming down today. But I'm going to pop you over to a couple of elite blokes that know what it's all about when it comes to the long wand. They're probably sitting in their best pluggers, a singlet, with a cold tin in their hand. Chris and Volsey, the intermediate line. Yeah. This episode of the intermediate line is brought to you by Manic Tackle Project, the only company who knows fly fishing as well as you do. And Feast Brushes, Australian-made brushes and dubbing, professionally graded natural materials, plus a full shop for all of your fly tying needs at beastbrushes.com. I think the um, I think the most important thing here is just to remain positive with whatever intro I choose to roll with. Are uh-huh. We all in agreement with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. All yeah. right then. Well, welcome back, listeners, um, to episode ninety-three, and we have a very special guest with us here today, tonight, whenever you choose to be listening to this. And we have uh, Mr. Dan Fraser on the phone. How are you, Dan? I'm good, guys. How you doing? Good, thanks, man. Thanks yeah, for man, joining us. Doing well. Yeah. Um, so for those who, who don't know, um, Dan is not related to anyone on Cheers. Okay. Um, <laughs> you don't know that. Uh, well, I should, that was, should have been one of the questions we asked in this, uh, in the, in the podcast. Uh, are, are you related to Niles? No? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not okay. sadly related to well, that. We, <laughs> Listeners, you can rule that out, okay? So, so, but, but, but I'll give you an introduction as to who you are, so the listeners can get a get a picture. Um, yeah. So Dan, you are you are a guide. You're a, you're an author, um, a published author, and you're also a um, a magazine columnist. That yeah. pretty much fits the description for you, correctly. Yeah, that that does. That does. I I write uh, from a freelance author. I write magazine articles and books and things like that and sell some photographs if if i'm lucky and uh and i do some local guiding yep 
Yeah. Excellent, mate. Uh, and I guess um, to, to tag on to the end of that, as far as a fisherman's concerned, uh, your your um, your love and skill and expertise in in the world of carp is is uh, is well known. And uh, is that what a lot of your um, writings are about? Yeah, exactly. That's that's what certainly it's the majority of what I what I write and and, and work on. That's sort of what got me. Um, moving i guess in this industry is that uh early on maybe a decade ago or so i was one of the few people uh and there was a number of us but but uh, that was um out writing and uh and speaking and uh trying to teach about catching carp on the fly as it was just starting to emerge in the in the states as um sort of a legitimate uh, uh fly target so mm. Yeah, that's what got me into it, and that's probably still how I'm best known. I, 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 you know, every once in a while I'll get a wild hair and try to write something about something else, but that's that's my niche for sure. Mm. Well, so you're you're definitely a well a well traveled angler, but um, but as as we just mentioned here, you know your your expertise and and uh, you know, your information you've shared throughout the the world essentially is is um, you know you're well known for carp. Can we talk a little bit about this book? Would you mind? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so the book is the uh, the Orvis Beginner's Guide to Carp Flies, um, and then it's got a subtitle because that's a requirement apparently. It says a uh, hundred and one patterns and how and when to use them. Right. Um, so yeah, it's just an exploration of, you know, um, how do you uh, look at a fish or a situation? How do you look at a carp specifically or a situation, and their behaviors and the environment they're in? Um, determine what they're eating, and then once you know that, how do you pick a fly, present that fly um, uh, to um, uh, to get them to eat? You know, to get them to eat your fly, and then you know a, a number of patterns and recipes uh, of fly patterns to make to meet those situations. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, <clears throat> some combination of a fly book and a sort of beginner's how-to manual uh, in that. Um, for me, at least, I had a, a steep, 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 actually not steep, it would be shallow learning curve, meaning it took me a long time to get up it, to yeah. get those first few fish to eat and start to solve uh, the riddle. And and that was based on the fact that I I looked at carp and said, I don't know, big, dumb, uh, eat anything, all of these sort of preconceived notions that I had growing up. Uh, in a family uh, and in a, in a uh, society, I guess, at least fisherman society that uh, um, didn't value the carp and sort of d disparaged it in a lot of ways. And so I just assumed they were easy. And uh, then the carp proceeded to take my face off and hand it to me for two years before I figured it out, oh, I got to I got to get better at this if I'm going to if I'm going to catch these. And and so that that kind of um, learning uh, journey I went through. Uh, with the help of some really talented uh, other fly carpers, um, kind of um, ooh, what sort I'm looking for. Uh, it defined how that the book was uh, um, designed, which is to help those anglers who uh, who are trying to get better or trying to start catching carp on the fly, um, make the leap to select the right the right food organism and, and present it right. So anyway, that was a long, much longer explanation than you asked for, but that's, uh, no, that's no, great. That, 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 that's spot on, man. That's exactly what we were trying to find out because, you know, obviously, you know, the U S is a big, big country and, and, you know, carp can live in uh, some quite diverse sort of habitats. Um, 
you know, and and obviously with with those sort of habitats, they have quite diverse tastes and and techniques um, uh, that that have been developed to successfully target them, mate. So you nailed it, and and what what happened was I started to get to know guys all around the country that were targeting these fish, and I got lucky enough to start traveling and experiencing all the different techniques and flies and watching things that worked here not work there and um and and i I started to realize just how um uh, specialized these fish can become and and i got to know some uh, carp biologists and researchers and some ecologists and discussing carp with them and um the way it was described to me was uh, the reason carp introduce so well into a new ecosystem is that as a species they're generalists, meaning they yep. could eat anything from a French fry to a crayfish to a, uh, you know, small bugs or whatever. But um, but that as a local population, they quickly become very adept specialists in certain food organisms that are the most abundant, and yep. so <clears throat> so that makes them highly successful. Um, in and uh, and and that made a lot of sense to me because I man I got water here where. You can go catch them on a crayfish pattern in this lake, and then you move over to that river, and they'll run from your crayfish. And, and I started to realize, oh, okay, so this is not a new revelation I'm having. Trout fishermen forever have learned to match the hatch or not get an eat. And um, and that's kind of what we got to learn to do with carp. But that involved going clear back to, you know, what do they eat? And how big are the food organisms that they do eat? And, and that took a lot of work, a, a lot of... Um, scientific research into the size of foods that they eat the type of foods that they target how they're they're eating you know their their the functionality of their faces like well how does this thing actually work and yeah. uh, and 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 yeah that's kind of that kind of uh, was the genesis of the whole project in your book there dan do you do you have um do you have guides as far as uh how to to, to discover these food sources yeah, so the way the book's broken down, it's it's by I, I broke basically the food categories into uh, a number of categories. Like um, meat is one of the categories, and th- those are like uh, moderately sized organisms like crayfish and damselfly nymphs and and uh, um, uh, I don't know worms. These sort of lar- little bit m- m- larger organisms. Um, super meat was another one. And that's, you know, the rare instance where you'll find carp that are very aggressive and feed on like large bait fish and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, insects. Um, and, and, and so you, you, as you read through it, each of these categories is broken down. And then when you, what it does is it says, all right, within this category, here's a number of food organisms they may be eating. And then within those, each one of those organisms, Here's the behavior from the carp you'll be seeing if this is what they're feeding on. Here's uh-huh. what the here's what the ecosystem will look like. You know, it'll have to have a soft bottom because they burrow in the mud or, you know, and so if you get a combination of this ecosystem and this behavior and not to mention you just seeing a lot of those organisms in the water, there's a good chance that this is what they're eating. And if that's the case, here's five flies you could use and here's how you p- present them to the fish and wow. that's that's how that's how that's the book is is structured. I, I think that book could uh, could translate internationally anywhere, really. I mean, and not yeah. so much just for carp. Like that's a that's a great approach for for all fishing and and any sort of astute angler to use the powers of observation to make selections on flies, gear, and and times to fish. 
So, um, yeah, I think uh, I think that, that I'm pretty. I don't have this book, and I, I spoke to you yesterday that that I'm pretty keen to get it um, because you know that, that for that reason, I think it's a great. I, I like books that promote good thought process. Does the does the book also have um, recipes for the flies that you suggest, or is it just uh, you know like the flies that you suggest? Yeah, it's got the recipes in there. Uh, it does not have step by step tying instructions. The the assumption I made was that you know with the internet and YouTube and all that stuff, uh, y- you know the step by step is probably easier and to find in a in a, a more productive way than a book. Uh, where it's difficult to describe some of that stuff, but it has all the recipes for the materials and then photographs of the flies. And if you if you're a fly tire, you know you can look at a photograph of the fly, look at the recipe as broken down, you know by different uh, parts of the fly, and and probably get pretty close to tying it yourself that way. Um, so yeah, it's got it's got all that should have all the information you have you need to make the flies, which is one of the weird things um, about carp on the fly, at least in the states, is um, despite its growing popularity, uh, you're probably going to have to make your own flies because it's it's still difficult to find them at retail. You either order them online or you uh, or you make your own uh, still. So uh, it should be all in there. Um, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you, you thought that it would tr- uh, it should be able to translate internationally. I I hope so uh, because what I didn't do is I didn't say you know in the Midwest these work or you know in this river system these work i tried to to instead say you know if it's got a rocky bottom it's jumbled rock the fish are acting this way uh here's what they're eating crayfish for example and then i used some of the research that I, i i was lucky enough to have some uh contact with uh with some carp researchers and and to say now you know not only would they be in crayfish, they target crayfish that are under a certain size and that are um, um, uh, molting, for example, and 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 tried to 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 even get a more specific there. So, in theory, and I'm not going to say this will work perfectly, but in theory, you should be able to pick up the book and read it and reference the water that you're about to fish, and hopefully get an idea of um, what what uh what might be in there and and then be able to tie a few flies and go give it a shot and you know when it works um uh i get letters and when it doesn't work they don't write me so i don't know i don't know <laughs> i was expecting you to say when it doesn't work i get letters too you know <laughs> no, I <will>. no. <laughs> no that's interesting i mean it sounds to me again without reading the book um the way you're describing it it sounds like a, a more of a, a manual for fishing rather than um you know what it's what is what it's uh what species is directing towards I mean, i'm sure it's going to be um a, a wealth of knowledge for anyone who sees this book as uh something that they want they want to read but when you're talking about educating it towards an approach rather than this is what you do um you know i think that anyone could apply that to to any situation and it leads me on to sort of ask you that um, even with with your, with your magazine articles in it, which would be obviously a, a, a smaller version. I'm sure it's not an excerpt out of what they could already find in the book. Do you write to target beginners or do you write to target the more advanced fishermen in regards to carp? That's a good question. Um, I do both. Um, but even the advanced stuff um, is um, uh, th- there, there are this, these fish are so <laughs> can be so challenging that uh, um you know, there's there's very few people out there who've 
look, I don't think I could ever master these fish. I think I can, I think I can get really good at catching certain fish in certain circumstances on certain waters, but you know, then you go somewhere else and, and they're, they're different and, and challenging. So, um, so, you know, when I do write the how to stuff on the carp, um, a lot of it is, is, um, uh, technique based and and i think that that's uh, i'm 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 hoping that that's uh helping both parties you know the inventor the beginners and the more advanced people um but there are a few sort of um oh i don't know uh, uh price of entry kind of things like you, you know you got to be able to to cast uh you got to spend some time trying to see fish in the water because you, well you guys are in the salt so you're 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 a little more accustomed to the sight fishing game a lot of anglers here will come at this from from trout where they maybe haven't done a ton of sight fishing mm-hmm. and uh and all of a sudden i'm asking them to you know see a tailing fish in two feet of water at 30 feet and they can't they can't see it and so there are some sort of price of admission kind of qualities that that we got to got to work on but it's funny you know as you said uh um uh that 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 this would be helpful maybe to all anglers i i got to thinking about it it's really weird how we view different groups of of fish from as a fly fishing community you know where we'll say look with trout if you ever if you've ever got a, a trout uh if you have ever gotten a fly um uh catalog It'll be broken into trout flies, which are then broken down to different food organisms that you're trying to emulate. And then you get to the warm water stuff and it's like bass flies. And there's like yeah. a whole bunch of things, frogs and minnows and things that don't look like nothing and and crayfish and and then there'll be pike flies and those yeah. and, and, and it's funny that with the warm water fish, we stop with the let's break this down into what they eat. And let's just generally say this fly seems to work for a warm water fish. And the salt is, you know, a, a little bit the, the, the same. I mean, if you get to, or I mean, a little bit back to the food organisms, they start talking about shrimp and crabs and, and they're, and they're breaking it back down into, um, knowing what the species that you're eating or, or what the food that your species is eating and so, you know, it, 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 it struck me as ironic that I have smallmouth bass flies that would absolutely be great carp flies, but if I didn't know any better, I'd have never bought them because the catalog said that they were for smallmouth bass. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, absolutely. instead of just saying, hey, this is a good crayfish fly. That, um, that's for sure, and, too. You know, and it's, it, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Yeah, look, I think, um, I think with the... With that, you know, a lot of people sort of pigeonhole into, um, you know, that's a smallmouth fly, that's a carp fly, that's a trout fly, that's a, you know, whereas if they thought about it like, you know, this is a, um, you know, this is actually copying a bait fish and these fish eat bait fish, therefore it would be a good fly for these species. You know, it might be, um, you know, a, a more of a lateral way of looking at it, you know, and, and open their eyes to, to how they're, um, you know, how the flies are, you know, what they're imitating, how they're meant to be fished. Um, and I guess that, that's the role of, you know, ed- education. And, and, you know, the beauty of a book like, um, you know, the 101 patterns and, and how and when to use them, um, you know, with an emphasis on how and when to use them. Um, do it, so you've got the book, John, uh, Dan, have you got any other, um, uh, you know, a- educational sort of uh, medias, like are you in, uh, which magazines can we find your work in and social media and stuff like that? Yeah, it's a good question too. I write a lot for a, a uh, online magazine called Gink and Gasoline. 
or web website, I guess, called Gink and Gasoline, um, Gink, which yep. does um, has a number of my my pieces uh, that are still available. Um, and then some of the other ones that you know that have been in print, uh, they're more challenging to find uh, because they you know were in print and they're, and they're they're not now. But I've written for the Drake and I've written for Fly Angler, um, a, a number of the a number of the fly fishing uh, magazines. And then I've done a lot of work. If you guys, uh, if if you have, don't hear my voice enough from this, um, I've done a number of educational podcasts with uh, or- Orvis uh, on the Tom Ro- Rosenbauer's podcast for Orvis. Orvis. Um, so you know, a Google search will oftentimes find uh, um, find a lot of uh, of my um, uh, podcast work, and so I'm kind of all over the board. If I was more focused, I'd probably be more successful. <laughs> but but I got all of these uh, these different outlets. I like to I like to utilize. Um, you know, you also you said you thinking about flies laterally, and that's a really uh, intelligent way to put it. I was I was fishing on a small trout stream. <clears throat> near here, not too near here, four hours away from here, one of my closest trout streams. And I, I hooked a, a relatively large male brown trout. Um, and as I was playing it, the, the fish coughed up an entire leopard frog, full grown leopard frog. And I stood there thinking, I wonder if I brought my frog flies, my bass flies. I mean, people will fish mice for, tr- for trout, but I, I bet that there are bass flies that would work if now that I know that the trout on this stream, the big browns eat frogs and why wouldn't they eat frogs? Of course they eat frogs. It just had never, it wasn't a trout fly. So it's not my trout box. So trying yeah. to broaden the way I think about that stuff, uh, would it help me? I think catch more and bigger fish. I'm, I'm imagining same with the bait fish. I mean, look, yesterday I was on a river near here, warm water river. Um, and I was catching smallmouth bass on a low country shrimp, uh, a saltwater redfish fly, but it was yep. weighted right. It looked right, had the right colors, and uh, and it swam right for what I was trying to get it to do. And I was catching smallies on it. So yeah, that, yeah, trying to broaden that thinking, I think, or keep me out of that box. And part of why we had no choice when we started fishing, when I started fishing for carp on the fly fifteen years ago, um, there only were trout flies. I mean, I was using I was using stonefly nymphs and stuff because I shouldn't say that there were warm water flies too, but there weren't carp flies, and so so we had to learn that. Oh yeah, it, it's not the fly; it's the food. Mm. Hey, hey, Dan, you you talked about their um um you know, uh, talked about using like a, a redfish fly for smallies flies, and and you talked about using uh, you know trout flies for carp. Um, and and the acceptance, if you like, of um, of carp fishing into into um, oh sorry, it led me on to think about the acceptance of carp fishing into the fly fishing community. Now, fifteen years is is a long time to be be fishing for carp and making it a, a, making yourself a specialist in that in that species. Um, I'm not sure if you like that word, but I mean that's the way you come across. Um, sure. In your experience, how how have you found the uh, acceptance of of carp fishing into the fly fishing community? Yeah, that's that's a fun question. So, specialist is a fair fair statement. It's funny. I'll, you know, I've been to, I've been to Cuba and Alaska and Costa Rica and and Mexico and I've fly fished all over uh, sort of North America, the Everglades and and um, I'll try to tell somebody about tarpon fishing in Cuba and it's like yeah 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 but what about I'm trying to catch carp help me talk talk to me about carp. So, um, that is that is definitely my my 
where I where I have you know my specialty would lie. But yeah, you know it's been it's been super unique over here. I, I maybe not unique. It's been interesting, is what I'm trying to say. In that when I first started, um, there there were already people who had done it and were doing it kind of, but it was very much. Um, uh, a gonzo kind of, you know, oh, I, one time I caught a carp on the fly and then, you know, that, that, but, but in terms of people actually, um, uh, focusing on them, there was very few of us. And what really made the difference, I think, was that the, the internet started to come around. And so we managed to be able to connect with each other in a way we had never been able to do that before. I'm sure there were people fishing for carp on the fly for years, but they were loners, you know, they were like me. I mean, I don't, I don't have a lot of people around here that fish for carp on the fly with me. I have a lot of friends that fish for carp on the fly. They're just scattered all over the country. And, um, and so the internet really sort of helped everyone connect. Um, my buddy, John Montana, uh, and I uh, got connected and, and Trevor and, and a, a bunch of guys who were, um, who were real spread out. And then some of them had ran, had started to run blogs and things like that. But, but um, initially, we were, I mean, when I was first catching them, I would flat out lie that when people would ask me what I was fishing for, I'd tell them I was fishing for bass or You're something. You were in the closet, were you? <laughs> yeah, I was right. I was still in the closet. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of people did that. Or if you did, you had to pretend like it was not something you take seriously. You know, it was a, yeah. it was, it was a joke. And yeah. um um, but as I got connected in with the rest of this community, um, and other people who sort of were taking it seriously, it sort of, I think maybe it emboldened us a little bit uh-huh. to, 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 to feel free to start talking about it, um, more openly. And, uh, there was, there was some steam, uh, from a few magazines that was starting to pick up that where they, they would allow, you know, that you can only write so many articles about the same trout water or the same, <laughs> yep you know, or fishing in the keys or whatever. And they were thirsty for, for some content about something different. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I mean, for years, anything I wrote or spoke about was, um, was almost an apology, right? It's, it started yeah. as, you know, a whole bunch of reasons why it's okay to fish for carp. That's how I had to start. <laughs> an <laughs> <Yeah>. apology. <laughs> yeah. Dear Anglers. Yeah, it's like, hey, listen, you know, uh, and now when I give a presentation, I'm, I've been asked to, to to speak at one of the local places on, in, in a few weeks here, and um, I'll start my talk by saying, look, do I need to, do I need to convince you that these are a worthy fly rod target, or are we past that? Because uh-huh. if we're past that, I'll tell you how we can t- I can tell you how to catch them. But if Hell we're yeah, not past that, I'll I'll run one of my old one of my old. Uh, uh, talks about why it's this is a worthy fly rod target, and most of the time, in fact, almost almost every time over the last five years, uh, the audience will vote for no, no, just tell me how to catch them. I've, I've already been trying for the last year, and I haven't been able to get one. So, yeah, so yeah. you know, let's move past that. Um, and and we went through this period of time. We I've got friends who lovingly refer to it as the revolution, where now it was it got to be so very popular got so so much backing from from companies and uh and outdoor magazines and things like that where there were tournaments popping up all over the place and um that uh it was it was in your face all the time and we've hit now another stage which i think is good 
Yeah. And it's almost this comfortability with it where, you know, it's not, you're not seeing it all. You, you know, if you see an article in a magazine about fly fishing for carp, um, it's not, it's just like any, like an article, if someone wrote an article in there about fishing for redfish or somebody mm. wrote one about fishing for trout, it's just, it's just a part of the culture. And, uh, um, there's a very few people I run into anymore who, when that's what I mentioned that I do are surprised yeah. that it's carp. Um, it's just become a piece of what people do. Very few people, um, do it as often or, or as specifically as, as me or, or my friends, I would say, uh -huh. but almost everyone I know has tried it and likes it and does it sometimes and does other stuff. And it's, <laughs> part of their repertoire you know yeah dan dan that's a fascinating parallel with what we have here in australia i mean you know one of our major fishing well fly fishing medias is a, is an iconic magazine called fly life um i don't know if you're familiar with it but it, it's a quarterly magazine it's, it's sort of like they call coffee table standard like it's got high production values glossy photos it's uh, i think it's about an a3 size you know and it, it's a um it's a really cool uh magazine and um you know it it's sort of over the over its 25 years has, has chronicled you know a lot of popularity trends in australia and it wasn't until recently and i mean like maybe 90 something um ep episodes or, or issues that it had actually acknowledged carp as a fly fishing target in australia interesting um, yeah yeah and look this is a very trout centric um magazine too in a way um they do cover others other um other genres so to speak but you know almost i'd, I'd say three out of four covers for example and, and a commensurate amount of its its content is is aimed firmly at you know trout trout yeah. techniques and their destinations and and um tackle yeah it, it's almost like saying you know, the, the magazine is is i mean i'm not trying to offend anyone who loves fly life here but it seems to be to give you more of a picture from my side of things it might add something to what Volty's saying there fly life seems to be a very trout centric magazine that covers a lot of trout or where places trout fishing we would travel to mm -hmm. yep. yeah 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 and that's that seems to be the interesting and there's not there's i'm not knocking there's anything wrong with that but uh, focusing on on um on on more warmer urban type fishing scenarios has only yeah. been a recent focus yeah yeah there's new owners you know relatively recently and and they've they've sort of broadened the um the editorial direction a little bit it feels like mm. um we should get them on and have a chat at some point but yeah 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 that's but, another, another story yeah that's another what, what i was trying to establish with with dan was you know there's an amazing parallel here in australia and um, i'm wondering you know in australia it sort of feels like um part of that is to do with carp's uh noxious class classification in in most states where you know that means if we catch them we have to knock them on the head um, you know, they're, they're not meant to be here. Um, uh, why do you think it's, it's got a, that sort of, um, feel in the U S Dan, like why do people sort of, you know, why did they feel embarrassed about chasing and targeting? Them? That's a good question. So for a long time they were, uh, over here they were, and they still are very frequently by non-fly anglers. I would say they are, uh, referred to as trash fish. Um, yeah. They're targeted by bow fishermen. We have a lot of bow fishermen here that that uh, uh, shoot fish with their bow and arrows, and mm -hmm. and, and had this definite um, uh, view as a sort of lower 
lower class citizen sort of in the fish species world. And some of that has to do with some, there are some, there are definitely some ecological impacts from carp being in, in waterways. Um, but there's maybe a misperception or an over, over, uh, uh, over assumption or, uh, 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 they attribute, I think a lot more damage is attributed to them than is really, um, uh, appropriate. And so we had a point where, um, some of that started to change here, uh, meaning, uh, um, uh, some of our scientific organizations came out, not not in any type of press release, but stopped the promotion, the the promoting the idea that if we if we were to rid ourselves of carp, the world would be um, paved with gold and 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 you know milk milk and honey, um, yep. and and uh, and stopped with the the concept that these that these fish were uh, trashing our ecosystems. Um, and and focused a lot more scientifically on when and where they're damaging and when and where they're not. Um, also, the recognition by our fisheries biologists that a lot of our fisheries are manufactured anyway, um, meaning we have a lot of really world-class cold water trout streams that only exist because a big-ass dam got put in on a hot, uh, on a warm water stream and it made a big reservoir, which made cold water, which we could put trout in, and now it's a world-class trout stream. Yeah. And so uh, this kind of... Um, uh, uh, this kind of uh, a general uh, s- a sense that the fish are um, worse than other fish that are here um, has faded some. We also have real uh, we we I, 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 as far as I and I and I've researched this pretty hard. I could be wrong. As someone, I'm sure I'll get messages about this. I I believe that now we have removed. Um, every state has removed their requirement to kill these fish on site um, and and now encourage you to just release them um, uh, live. And that made a big difference when it's sort of state-sponsored uh, um, um, or state-encouraged uh, to, to kill these things. Uh, it, it feeds the notion that they are really, really, really bad. And, the, and our, and, and our, 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 Game managers over here, I think, realized that that we weren't making dents in the population with things like that, and it wasn't it wasn't going to change anything. It just made the banks smell where people were leaving them, and yeah. or or creating you know situations where individual animals were being mistreated for for no good reason. And so they said, just put them back or use them, um, use them for something, you know, eat them or use them for fertilizer or use them. Um, but don't, don't kill them and then just throw them back in the water or throw them in a dumpster. And, and that started to, to help change some of the perception a little bit. Um, and then a big piece of it here, a really big piece of it here is we're allowed to put them back and fly fishing already has a culture of catch and release fishing here. And so it was an easy transition for people to say, well, yeah, why not carp? I, I'm. I'm not using the fish that I, I'm not catching fish for food anyway. And so what, what difference does it make if it's a, if it's a carp or, uh, you know, something that tastes good or doesn't taste good. And that all kind of played into, uh, to that, um, that, that change in, in the views, I think from the, from the fly fishing community, there are still people, I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize. There are still people, a lot of people probably even in the fly fishing community who, uh, you know, 
really hate these things, but they've also seen, we've had some very, very prominent, very highly respected fly anglers in the U.S. that talk about catching carp and the editor of one of the one of the editors of field and stream magazine is a good friend of mine named kirk dieter and and kirk writes about them as a as a something everybody should fish and john garrock is an author uh of a bunch of fly fishing books and stuff uh, also a friend of mine and he's written uh, a number of chapters about targeting carp in fact he came to south dakota to try to catch carp with me um so when some of these sort of more vaunted uh, even people that are looked up to by the trout purists uh, have willingly said, "No, no, this is fun, and I do this too." Uh, some of that, uh, some of that um, rejection of them as a species has melted away. Does that mm. does that make sense? How I describe that, guys? Yeah. yeah, it does. It seems it seems almost ironic, and I'm going to make an observation here without without opinion that. Um, it seems to be that the people that have the most opposition to carp are the same people that that uh, revere another introduced species. That's how it looks to me. Um, well, well, it, I think that's true. And and you know the other th- thing we have finally, you know, I don't know, finally gotten to it is is fair to say. But look, in the nineteen seventies and sixties. We had rivers that would light on fire and take the paint off your boats, right? And yeah. and Lake Michigan, one of the largest freshwater lakes in the on the planet, had been fished out effectively. And mm. now, you know, so and and we put in steelhead into Lake Michigan, which is you know a saltwater uh, a trout a trout that runs into saltwater, and we put salmon in there, which is a saltwater fish, obviously. And you know, we've done so much manipulating of these things. That when you think about Lake Michigan, for example, Lake Michigan is full of zebra mussels, which is an invasive species. Those zebra mussels are fed on by gobies, which is a invasive species that was introduced through ballast water from from seagoing ships. Those gobies are small bait fish that are fed on by the common carp, which was an introduced species we put there intentionally. The whole ecosystem is alien. So at some point, you know, it, that sort of led to some acceptance of like, okay, look, you know, we're not putting things back. There's there's not a big push to put things back to exactly how they were, you know, before European contact or anything like that. So instead of that, let's look at what we have and manage it f- as appropriately as possible and or as as good as we can and um uh and, and, and move forward from there. So <clears throat> it's, <clears throat> we have no problem moving fish around in this country and putting them places that they weren't uh, already there. So it just, it, the, the, the level of hypocrisy that came to deciding this one species was the one that shouldn't be here when all these other things have been moved around from all over the continent or other continents, uh, it, it, that, that hypocrisy eventually sort of collapsed on itself or is, it has collapsed on itself in a lot of places. Now, are there places where the native endemic fish here are threatened by by carp or by other invasive species? Absolutely. Do we take appropriate measures to remove those th- those invasive species and try to preserve those endemic fish? Absolutely, and we should. Um, but to say, well, we should get all the carp out of Lake Michigan because they're not they shouldn't be there, and naturally, but we're going to leave the salmon, we're going to leave the steelhead, we're going to leave. It just the 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 argument becomes so um, apocryphal at some point, or, or hypocritical at some point that uh, 
uh, it it kind of falls on uh, it kind of collapses on itself, you know. Yeah, if you're going to use an ecological standpoint as your argument against carp, that's that's a pretty slippery slope. You'd, you'd want to be staunch to uh, to endemic species to your area. That's for sure. Not even not even translocated natives. You know, like it's um exactly. Yeah, but, if, but if you take if you take that out of the equation, you know, I I would wager that most people have have come across carp. If they've come across carp with a uh, with an attitude that we've just described, and then tried to fish for them, and had their, then had their ass handed to them, um, you know, the, you take you, like, like soon those people take the ecological you know disaster out of the equation and see them as a sports fish, you know, and it's um uh, and I think that um I think that that's where attitudes change towards. I'm not saying I'm not yeah. saying in any way, shape, or form that we should we should foster more more carp in, in even even in australia you know we shouldn't we shouldn't be putting them in the water there's definitely no doubt that they, they cause ecological ecological damage but let's face it when we call it spade a spade there are other fish that aren't native to australia here or or in the states that are that are causing um yeah probably not probably not as uh how do you put you couldn't say a desirable eco ecological damage but when you're starting to preference a fish in a waterway because without them there'd be nothing else to catch that's just as detrimental as uh, as some of the some of the damage that, that carp do that that's visually seen. You know, like it's uh you know when you can't see that these species are getting decimated by a high end predator that's not even meant to be in the country, um, as opposed to a waterway that gets muddied up that was probably damaged through through human intervention in the first place. Um, you know, it just seems I, it blows my mind. It really does. You know, because I've heard yeah. some people talk about carp and and get, and just try to end the conversation no they're a rubbish fish why well <laughs> they do damage what damage and then they they start to flounder around it and then you put them back onto their species and and it's like oh no 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 that that species that i like to chase is um is 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 god's gift to us there's no um there's no problem there at all <laughs> when you yeah. when your argument devolves into because i like them yeah uh, it, it starts to it starts to lose steam and uh you know another thing i think you you really touched on that's important and and something we've seen here in the states as more and more anglers have tried to chase these fish is the difficulty with which they are caught i think it, it inherently starts to breed some respect for the fish mm. we have exact parallels in saltwater fish to to the carp situation that are maybe 20 years more advanced. And I think they might lay out kind of a, a pathway that will go with carp on the fly here, which is we have redfish here and redfish are um, an unbelievably fun uh, fly rod target. Um, and they're fished for the, from the marsh in Louisiana, all the way along the Gulf coast down to Florida, all the way up to North Carolina on the East coast. Um, and they're very carp-like. They they are more aggressive, and they eat uh, bait fish and shrimp more often. But they tail in shallow water. They've got a mouth, a downturn mouth. And for a long time, they were considered a trash fish. They were gigged, which is what we call it when you stand with a pitchfork on the front of a boat and stab them. Um, <laughs> no, they, yeah. I didn't know any of this. That's wild. Yeah. They, uh, um, and, and their populations were absolutely decimated. And, and then a, in, in an attempt to, this is really fascinating, in an attempt to, um, this is a, now the difference between this and carp is it is a native fish, um, but in an attempt to sort of save the species who was believed to be uh, competing with more desirable species, which is why we, we worked real hard to try to wipe them out, 
a um, they had a, a contest in New Orleans to uh, uh, cook the redfish to, to invent a recipe that would make them uh, popular. And and this recipe called blackened redfish was invented, which is now a really popular way to, to or, or uh, menu item in, the, in a lot of restaurants. And once they, once that uh, caught on, uh, moves to start to try to uh, protect the populations started uh, to, to exist. My friend, Tony, owns a an outfitter on the coast of uh, South Carolina um, and uh, that's a redfish haven and uh, his outfitter has a number of guides that target redfish on the fly and and they're a real successful outfitter when he moved to South Carolina he was able to get the license plate we get we have personalized license plates here I don't know if you guys do that or not where yeah. if you you can go in and suggest a license plate have something on it and as long as no one else has got it you can get it. Uh, his license plate says redfish on it. I'm telling you, uh, that would be like going into uh, a go getting a license plate in Florida that says bonefish. It's just someone's got that 25 years ago, and they're never getting rid of it, right? Yeah. Um, that's how it is now with the redfish. But now it's a very popular sport fish, and um, I wonder how if that parallel. You know, bonefish were considered a trash fish for a long time. You can't eat them, right? Um, and so they were, uh, not treated uh, tarpon, hell tarpon, you know, they're bony and they're not good to eat. And the king, maybe we'll make them into cat food and until the sport fish until, until they caught on as a, as a pure sport fish. And now they're, we protect the migration and we study them and, and, uh, so I, you know, I wonder, I don't know that we'll ever get to a point with carp where we're trying to protect their migrations cause they're not a native fish, but, um, and their acceptance as a sport fish has um, uh, uh, has parallels in a number of things that tastes have changed here on whether or not they were uh, considered worthy of staying in the water or not. And and mm-hmm. so I wonder if we don't see continue to see that that uh, parallel move. You know what would be really fascinating if the if the bait fishing for carp and the spinning fishing for carp, like they do in, in, in Europe, if that were to start to catch on in the United States, a, it would be a massive market. So there's a lot of, of, uh, of the industry that would be behind it because we've got so many carp and so many people, but also, um, when you start fishing for something as a sport fish, uh, you just sort of gain a respect for it a little bit. And the next thing you know, um, you're treating it differently and you're thinking about its populations differently than you used to. Yeah, absolutely. Hey Dan, mate, what's, um, what's your situation with the carp? What are you, what kind of, um, streams and rivers or lakes are you fishing? Oh man. So I'm super lucky. I live in like the carp capital of the world, maybe. Um, no, that's not true. I got, I got people in other elsewhere that are all mad at me now who just, who heard that, but <laughs> I, I, I've got uh, welcome to the Intimately uh, Line podcast. People are mad at us all the time. <laughs> I've got I've got some great resources here. So in in South Dakota where I live, um, we have uh, we're called the pothole region of uh, of the Great Plains. So we've got a a whole bunch of natural lakes uh, all around that are shallow-ish, you know, 12, 15, let me do some conversion, uh, four, five, six meter deep, maybe up to, maybe up to, uh, I don't know, eight, nine meters deep at their deepest, which Mm -hmm. really grow carp well. Um, uh, We are a, 
we get very cold in the winter time and uh you know put a couple of feet of ice over those and then we warm up in the summertime which seem to be really um uh uh good for uh carp um gr- uh, growth and uh and so i've got a number of of lakes around um and then i've got also um one two three or four small uh rivers which we would be you know picture uh, a they'd be the size of something that you'd you'd wade for trout right i mean it's it's never gets you know you can it, you can you can wade them uh there's deep holes but there's shallow spots and they're you know never more than than uh uh i don't know 10 or 15 meters across um and uh and those are fun to fish um and then where i really get lucky is that the missouri river runs through south dakota and the missouri is uh, as it is, it's the third largest river on the on the planet, um, and that's with um, our original uh, explorers making a giant mistake um, and having named the Mississippi River first because it's farther east. When the Mississippi and the Missouri met up, uh, they 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 were they the 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 from the confluence downstream they they named it the Mississippi, and. Um, and it turns out the Missouri was way, way, way bigger. And so it probably actually, so the Mississippi is actually a feeder river of the Missouri. But even yeah. as it is, without without that, even as it is without having to rename the whole bottom half of it, it's still the third largest river in the, in the world. And uh, it's a monster. And we have four big reservoirs in South Dakota on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know one of them is uh, the Owahi Reservoir is... Uh, I think 431 miles uh, um, it long, which would be, I was going to try to do a quick conversion to, uh, um, to kilometers. It would be, um, oh, geez, I don't know, 600, no, 550 kilometers or something long. That's yeah. awesome. Oh, yeah. It's I'm just, huge. I'm just looking on the, ma- on the map, Dan. Sorry. Um, so South Dakota's, it, it's got a, a couple of... Uh, famous landmarks i mean you got mount rushmore over there in the in the west yep yeah um uh i think most australians would be familiar with that um yep and you're down you're down in the southeast corner near near nebraska which is, of course is famous for its um its uh co-ed's uh channel on the on the tube so um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true that's true that's, that's, that's the University of Nebraska, where the N stands for knowledge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's so you can see the Missouri on that on that yeah. map makes those those four big reservoirs. The reservoirs are great trout fishing, but also the the river in between, right? Is is you know a mile wide and um, uh, it and. It meanders and shallows up and has flats and and backwaters and braids out uh, much like a very very much like how when a um when a major river system runs into the ocean and creates a big delta um you get a number of those actually in freshwater here because you'll have this huge river running into the next huge reservoir and so, it, it, which it treats sort of like an ocean, right? So it drops all its sediment and it creates these deltas where the river braids out and stuff. So we've got these really three different 
three very different ecosystems the small streams the giant river actually four the small streams the giant river system and its deltas the big reservoirs uh which the carp act much differently in huge deep reservoirs and then uh, and then my pothole lakes um so I, you know i i i kind of i mean i'm i've got a, a embarrassment of riches here um and uh which is actually why i, I went out and bought a um i did I'd have it shipped up here from from the Atlantic coast, but I, I bought a, a saltwater flats boat. I, I run a, a technical polling skiff uh, up here for carp, um, a, a seventeen foot, uh, f- you know, full on flats boat with a polling platform and the the Which whole night. I got a I got a spider, seventeen and a half foot spider. Um, it's a flicker series, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a man, it's amazing. You know, drafts eight inches of water, and uh, um, and you know, pulls like a champ and, and it's, it's great. But, uh, uh, but running, running something like that. Well, first of all, I've got the only one in the upper Midwest, uh, in this part of the United States at all. And so I get some very strange looks at the boat dock, um, uh, mm. very strange looks and the people don't know what the polling platform's for. Um, and so <laughs> I've been asked, I've been asked what they lunch on. I've given them some great answers, man. I, I told one guy it was a uh, uh, a cleaning cutting board, cleaning station. Yeah. <laughs> um, I told one guy it was a spoiler, so that when I'm really going fast, I, I told one guy it was a rain cover to keep the water off of the motor. Um, uh, but yeah, I guess it's strange. But yes, I had to do it because I didn't have to do it, but I, I did it because um, we've got the, we've got all these. I've got such an immense amount of resources here to be able to go uh, all within a couple hour drive of my house that that um, I, uh, I needed a boat to explore them, and that seemed like a good the same thing people fish bonefish out of, and um, and that's a, that's a lot like how I'm targeting most of my fish here on sand flats and stuff like that. Also, I was going to say this leads us on to um, a topic that I didn't have in my notes to talk about today, but I'd be interested in exploring it. Because I, I've found the, the the fishing for carp out of a boat very different to fishing for carp from the bank. And um, um, have you have you had to adapt a different technique to fishing from out of the boat? Yeah, I've, I've had to learn to suck less, man. It's hard. <laughs> it's, it's hard. hard yeah, yeah. Boat going one way, and so a few things that we'll do is um, I like to I will post up my boat and uh and try to catch passing fish um because you're at least you're stationary um if i got some if i've got somebody on my boat uh that is uh, struggling it's already difficult right in that you've got a three-dimensional question of the fish is 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 traveling horizontally at a certain speed your fly's sinking at a certain sink rate you've got to get to the right depth i mean it's a it's a it's a it's already a difficult uh equation to solve when you add to that that your boat is moving and so you're trying to factor that in it's a it's a real challenge so i'll post the boat up uh, if that's not working I'll, I'll use the boat to get us somewhere and then and then get us out and it will wade um i fish a lot of carp in open water uh lately which is really interesting it's a lot more like tarpon fishing in that um we're putting on really slow sinking almost neutrally buoyant flies and we'll see schools of or shoals they're actually called of carp coming across uh, uh in open water um and we'll try to we'll cast that fly out and try to intersect that shoal and and slowly strip it in front of them rather than sort of your traditional tailing fish 
Um, and uh, and that that's a little easier uh, because um, you can lead the fish by a lot farther and and have a lot of a little more time to try to set up your your approach. Um, but but all in, I mean, it's it's difficult. Carp on flies hard as it is, mm. and then you add the you add the the boat situation, and and it's it's definitely more challenging. But on the other hand, uh, I'm lucky to have the resources I have in that. Yeah, you know. Uh, you, you, you may get you may get seventy or eighty shots a day, and so we we're hoping to catch two fish. Uh, we don't have to have a huge conversion rate um, if we if we uh, if we're getting seventy you know like I said seventy or eighty shots a day. Um, and yeah. uh, but it's 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 not easy. That's the other thing that we had that we really struggled early on in this uh, sort of transition as people started to become more accepting of carp was getting across to newbies hey listen this is going to be hard this is going to be hard i know you think they eat anything because you fed them bread at the local park one time or you saw me <laughs> eating tortilla chips under the uh under the the restaurant deck that's out over the water but mm. in real life a wild carp is a difficult fish to catch on a fly and uh i still struggle i mean look i donated a trip recently to a conservation group here and a guy bought it, and he called me and said, "Hey, I want to schedule my trip." And I said, "Absolutely, um, you know, let's get it scheduled." And we did. And he wanted me to to go to his home water instead of mine, and to fish him off of his fishing pontoon boat instead of my flats boat. And I, the whole problem was he didn't realize how difficult what we were talking about was. For me to go to water, I have no no experience on, no um, uh, knowledge about. To I could probably find fish, but man, it's going to be a lot less efficient than if I'm somewhere where I know where they are and what they're eating. And then to fish him off of his pontoon boat instead of my boat is all. He's not trying to be. He's not trying to be difficult. It's just a misperception about how that they must be everywhere and they must, they're not scared of boats or anything. And I bet they'll eat my fly. And we should be able to do this off of anything and it's it's uh it's just a misperception about what what he was in for so yeah you know, trying to educate him on what what this is really going to be like has been challenging but uh um uh uh you know i i w that's been a part of getting new people involved is is letting them know like it's really fun but it's also really hard you just should know that up front you know mm. Remember, we were talking yesterday in regards to that quote Joe Samelli made, which I think was is, is really uh, is really encapsulates that that whole thing. I mean, you're talking about for people who don't know, Joe, Joe Samelli was the editor of Field and Stream, quite a conservative hunting and fishing magazine. Um, you know, the uh, the the owner of Hookshots, and now now has got a development with Meat Eater. I mean, he's no, he's no mug as far as fishing is concerned, and and um, the way he commentates on it. But he had a pretty good quote. You you remembered it? Can you remember what it was? Or? Yeah, yeah, he he was so they were doing an article about um they were doing an article about what's the most difficult species to catch on the fly. Actually, Blank, what's the most blanket blanket like fish. through saltwater freshwater, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh um the uh the author uh had said that he was talking about his his trip to Belize to catch permit. And uh and, but he, but he also, and he, because he was making the contention that the permit is the most difficult fish to catch on a fly, with recognition that steelhead are very difficult to catch and that muskie are very difficult to catch. He asked Sir Melly, and Sir Melly's quote was, 
Uh, and I'm reading this to you guys, but he said, believe it or not, I think one of the most challenging species to catch is a wild carp on the fly, said Joe Cermelli, senior editor and host of B-Side Fishing. By wild, I mean one living in an area where it's eating natural forage like nymphs and crayfish. I'm talking about unmolested carp way up some river, not the ones in the park pond that rise to white bread and french fries. To catch a truly wild, wary carp feeding in skinny water with hair and feathers, you damn well better know exactly what that fish is feeding on. You better not step on a twig or splash too loudly as you wade. I've spent an hour waiting for a shot only to blow my cover with a wrong move and final, or finally get the shot and have the fly snubbed and not get another one all day. And um, I think Joe really summed that up there. Now, he ruffled some Beautiful, feathers. Yeah. Right? Wow. These are guys, when you talk about permit and steelhead in the United States, you're talking about, like, that's the... the, the that's that's more than taking on trout. That's taking on like the most vaunted species of top fly targets that we have. Mm. The steelhead is exceptionally difficult because they're not feeding uh, when they come out of the ocean, and uh, and the permit is notoriously picky. And guys will devote their whole lives to catching you know five of them. Um, and uh, and so for Joe to put that in there, that's a that's a pretty big deal. But he's not the first one. I mean, uh, I, um. We had a, a real prominent personality here um, uh, uh, named Conway Bowman, who had a, out, a couple outdoor fishing, a couple outdoor sh television shows. Uh, he, was, he was the Mako guy from San Diego, right? He, yep, he's the Mako guy from San Diego. Yep. He was he, not too recently or not too long ago was quoted as saying that he believed catch, catching carp on the fly or carp on the fly were more difficult than permit on the fly. Um, but you get so many shots in whereas with permit you might get two shots in a day and with carp you might get a hundred so you'll still you'll be able to catch more more carp obviously but that any individual fish may be more difficult to to get an eat out of now conway you know he's not wrong but i would what i would argue is these things are situational I know easy carp. I do know some easy carp. Not, I, 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 that's not fair to say. I know carp that are easier than other carp. It just really depends on what body of water you're on, what they feed on there, what, what's being asked of you. Um, if you are at the Blackfoot Reservoir, which is a very large reservoir in, in the United States, um, you're blind casting big black leeches and stripping them and carp are eating them. You're blind casting into big muds of carp and they're eating a, a stripped leech fly. That's easier than if you are on the Columbia River where all they eat is clams. So they're not used to a fly that moves and you've got to find those fish in thigh deep water, somehow get a tiny thumbnail sized clam fly in front of one know where it is and not move it and recognize when he ate it. I mean, there's just, that's another level of challenging. So yeah. it, it, it's all situational with these fish. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That that's something we probably take for granted, you know, like because you get so many shots in a lot of scenarios, you, you, you know, you don't, um, you, you can sort of overlook the, uh, the, the high level of specialization that's possible in going into each shot. Oh, yeah. could you yeah, could you definitely. imagine it if you only had one shot at carp a day? No, you know? 
Oh man, <laughs> my heart would be in my throat. Buck fever, buck fever would be just be coursing through my veins. But, uh, <laughs> you, you know, you know, if you had a good calf stream or a lake or something like that, you know, another one's yeah, it's not un, not a, not unlikely to see another one. Let's put it that way. That's, that's right. That's right. You're moving on. In fact, when I have anglers on my boat, <laughs> this is funny. There's always uh, you know, there's an uh, an irony in it, but uh, um, I'll, I'll tell them all the time. I don't, don't worry about it. It's just carp. Because yeah. <laughs> they start to get really frustrated. They're missing them and missing them. And what? And how come they didn't catch that one? And then they finally hooked one and it broke them off. And then, you know, and they, hey, take a deep breath. Don't worry about it. It's just carp. And and what I mean by that is, you know, we got another one. We're going to, there's more. We're, we'll go yeah. find some. You got more chances. Um, uh, yeah, if you only have one shot, one that, that's even like, you know, when you guys, when we're fishing for steelhead, I don't, do you, do you guys have steelhead down there? No. No. Okay, so are you guys familiar with what a steelhead is? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a, it's an anadromous uh, rainbow trout, right? Exactly. Yep. Obviously, it's 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 his requirement to insert <laughs> words like that into the podcast every show. Dan, it took him an hour, but we got there. <laughs> like, yeah, he's going to show his anadromous. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's he's definitely intelligent. He just likes to show you that he's intelligent. That's. All, you know. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I'm sure we'll bring up catadromous species soon too. Yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna, I was just gonna say we're talking about eels next, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the um, you know the 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 steelhead are difficult because they they're not feeding when they come in back into the river because if they did they'd eat all the smolt and it's a whole mess. But anyway, yeah. they're also difficult because there's just not very many of them left. So you you know you're taking you're you're taking a fish that's inherently difficult, and then you're reducing the number of shots you have so substantially because there's so few of them now, and you don't know when you're not sight fishing to these things. You just know <clears throat> there's probably I hope they're in this pool, and you're running the fly through it over and over and over and over, and you don't know if you're showing it to a bunch of fish that aren't eating it or you're showing it to an empty pool, and 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 so. Uh, um, uh, so you know that 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 reduction in the number of shots makes it just inherently more difficult. Whereas at least with carp, you're lucky enough, hopefully, that you know there's always one around the next corner, and and you're going to yeah. get another another try. Yeah. Hey, hey, Dan, I've got a question for you, man. Um, in Australia, they're they're pretty rare, but um, koi <laughs> carp. Uh, do you have those in the US? The koi. Yeah, we do. Um, mostly they are, um, somebody, you know, decided they didn't want their fish bowl anymore and, and went and dumped mm -hmm. the, the fish in the lake. Um, we do have, we have a number of di different carp species here. So we'll have koi, um, and, uh, that you can, you can target on the fly. Um, and do you find them, do you find them any diff more difficult than, than regular carp? Yeah. You know, I think, uh, I, I personally, and I, I have no science to back this up, but boy, they seem more passive in, in their, in their feeding, more difficult to, than, than, uh, than the commons do. And I don't know if that's something genetic, you know, obviously the koi is sort of a genetically manufactured animal, uh, through selective breedings and things like that over thousands of years. And, and, and I, I don't know if that's what it is or, or what, but gosh, I do find them, uh, more challenging. Um, We've also got the grass carp here, which is uh, another uh, introduced fish. Um, they're they're a true carp uh, in that they're part of the minnow family. 
um, but they don't have a downturn mouth. They've got their mouths on the front of their face, and and they look like, um, well, uh, you know, uh, Chris, you mentioned when you and I were talking earlier that they they look like milkfish a little bit, and they do. They're they're yeah. very much shaped like that, and, they're, and their mouths in the same place. They're primarily vegetarians, but they will take a fly. Um, and uh, they are very difficult to catch, partially for because they are vegetarians. Um, or not, they're not pure vegetarians, but they, they do eat a lot of vegetation, so they're they're more challenging from that perspective. Um, and then once you hook one, they're they're like tying your fly line to a, a missile. Um, they're 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 fast and they leap and and they're they're uh, hyperactive. I guess is a, is a good way to to put it. They look um, insane. They look they look just like you said, like a torpedo with fins. They look like a cross between. If no one, if anyone listening to this in Australia has never seen one, Google it. They look. They do. They look like a cross between a carp and a milkfish. Yeah. And um, yeah. and to, from the way you describe them, like you got this fish that is just dead set keen on uh, emptying a spool and jumping the whole time, right? Like it just jumps like a tarp. And you're saying yes, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll jump like a tarp, and and uh, and they get massive. I mean, like they'll 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 get to 80, 90 pounds. <laughs> they, That's they're, incredible. They're, yeah, they're incredibly big. Yeah. Um, I used to have a, now that's, they're, they're still carp though. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because, uh, they're called grass carp because they do eat a lot of vegetation. They were originally put into, uh, decorative ponds and, and golf course ponds and stuff around here in, as triploids, uh, supposedly unable to reproduce in order to keep the vegetation under control. Um, of course, you know, uh, as we all learned from uh, Jurassic Park, nature finds a way, right? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> somehow they got into the waterways and they figured out how to spawn, and and now we've got them, you know, sporadically around. Um, but I, I, you know, I used to have a, a whole um, uh, population in a lake that uh, ate grasshoppers, and every you could almost set your clock by it. Every evening, uh, the lake would just light up with these fish rising to grasshoppers. And uh, it looked like, you know, bass or trout, uh, uh, more like trout, actually, because the bass have such a pop to their eat. It was a lot more of a sip. Um, but then you hook one and it might be a 25 pound uh, milkfish shaped fish that you and that, that's going to start trying to leap its way across the lake. Um, it was incredible. It was an incredible fishery. Um, so, you know, they're 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 uh, um they're a really interesting fish. We then also have uh, two other species that are commonly mistaken for carp. Uh, they're they're a native fish. They're called buffalo, and um, they're actually suckers. They're not in the carp family. But the smallmouth buffalo has a downturned mouth. It looks just like a carp uh, in terms of its facial structure. They're like they got smaller scales. They're iridescent and silver, uh, but they're commonly mistaken for carp. Um, and, uh, and that we target those on the fly, I would say they're kind of lumped in as part of the carp on the fly kind of, um, category of fishing. And then they have a cousin called the, uh, big mouth buffalo, which is a lot like those grass carp in that they're much more torpedo shaped. They've got a big mouth on the front, um, of their, of their, uh, uh, of their face. They, they do a lot more sort of filter feeding, I think. Um, but they'll definitely take a fly, and I've had them chase down bait fish flies that I was fishing with. You know, who knows what turns on one individual fish every now and again, and they're exceptionally strong uh, and fun to catch and get and get quite large. Um, we had some researchers around here that not much was known about those fish. 
We had some researchers around here very recently catch a bunch of the smallmouth buffalo and then kill them and to get their eardrum bones out and, and count the rings to try to get some idea of the age distribution. And um, I think the old, I think the, the fish were up to 120 years old that they were, uh, that wow. they were catching. They're, they're pretty incredible fish. And that's part of what is helping our, um, our idea of let's not just kill everything that we think is a carp is that we have these native fish that are very frequently mistaken for, for, uh, for carp and they, um, uh, and, and so in, in order to sort of protect that native fish, um, there's a lot of like, Hey, just, let's just let it go at this point and we'll f- let the biologists sort it out. Mm. There seems to be a lot of, a lot of study. Uh, I don't know if it goes on Australia. I mean, but there's a lot of study that goes on Australia in, in regards to eradicating them or, uh, finding a, finding a, a, a use for them, I guess you could say, but I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of study that goes on about carp, where they originate from, where they're not, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, where they're not um, doing exceptionally well in comparison to indigenous species, like whether, you know, in Europe or something like that. But in the States, you, you've mentioned a few times there's been studies in, in a few circumstances. Are people studying these fish for... Uh, as a as a as a recreational species over there yeah we've had studies with them as a recreational species and then we just have a, uh, have had a significant amount of research also about just on the, like their physiology that was yeah. one of the researchers that i got to know um really well was a researcher from brown university who um he was just studying his physiology he just wanted to know how their mouths work and how their faces work and all that kind of stuff that was just a purely scientific endeavor for him it wasn't uh it wasn't based on, um, on you know, uh, anything other than just sort of getting understanding the, the knowledge of these fish. I learned a ton from him uh, for my book, frankly, um, as I as I learned what was science and what was myth about how and what these things eat. Mm. That's interesting. How important do you think is learning the physiology, well, of any prey really, but for carp as for for uh, as a specialist. Well, so for for me, it was a big deal to learn that like uh, how they use their five senses, um, and and they have like a you know they have a crusher, a pharyngeal jaw um, that uh, um, and 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 you know when when he taught me that their their crusher only works on items uh, about the size of their eyeball. So it varies from individual to individual, right? The size of the fish uh, will uh, determine how big those crushers are, mm-hmm. but but also how big their eyeballs are, right? So yeah. um, when I learned that, I thought, oh my gosh, these two inch long flies, no wonder they don't eat, eat my two inch long flies. They can't, they wouldn't be able to get that animal into their, their jaw, their crusher in the back. And so I downsized my flies a lot when I learned that. Um, uh, you know, some of that kind of stuff was was really important for me to learn. So along those lines, that'd be quite interesting in the fact that, I mean, I've seen carp over here eat baitfish flies. You've talked about them eating baitfish flies as well, but they're probably eating them out of aggression or just using their mouth like a hand or as, a, as, a, as an act of aggression as opposed to eating it, right? I mean, like it's, I mean, if you're, if you're finding, I mean, as, as an angler trying to target them all year round, if you were, um, you know, if you're finding them in, I don't know. I mean, in a, in a breeding pattern or, or a situation where they're not going to pick anything up, or they they might not be feeding, but they might be uh, interested in uh, protecting 
whatever they're doing. You know, that, that that's an observation to make to be able to make a fly selection right there, really. And I guess to, yeah, because you wouldn't, if you knew that about that, about that phalangeal jaw at, um, um, you know, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't be using a baitfish pattern if you were targeting them singles as eating or anything like that. that. I mean, I've, I've it, seen I, them school up in lakes and, um, in, and, I'm, and I'm assuming they're in a, in a breeding pattern when they're doing that because they're not up in the shallows feeding when they're doing uh, that. I'd imagine that, um, that might be a situation that, uh, you could target them with, with, with as, as a form of aggression to try and it, try and, um, trigger that. Yeah, I think that's exactly. I think you're right. I think, I think there are times that 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 that's what they're doing. I think if you're fishing something soft, they're maybe less concerned about if that's what they eat. They they they're less concerned about using that crusher. They got to use that crusher to open up a crayfish or to open up a clam, but they wouldn't necessarily need to to swallow a bait fish or swallow a leech or something. Mm. So I think that some of it is that. Um, okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're 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 right. It it. Um, it definitely has informed um, uh, when and what I'm 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 using, where I'm using it. Um, so you know, there's a whole bunch of interesting physiology about these fish that, like, <clears throat> uh, <coughs> um, uh, that I learned from Dr. Gidmark. You know, one of the things was they have taste buds all over the outside of their body. So taste buds on their eyeballs, on their on the outside of their face, um, all the way back up to their dorsal fins. Uh, they're like a big tongue underwater, wow. and they do a, yeah they do a lot of their locating prey by taste. And so I had to be careful about making sure I stopped using head cement or glues on my flies. I had to be, I, I got real I got much much more um, particular about. I'm not, I don't put any scent or flavor on my flies, although I don't, you know, do what you want. If you want, it's, it, this is all a game anyway. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but I don't, but I did get careful about making sure they don't have other scents on them or, or tastes on them. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I learned they have um, uh, 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 what are called ASCs, um, alarm substance cells on their bodies, <clears throat> outside of their bodies, which are basically, <clears throat> basically small balloons that are uh, uh, filled with a a amino a, a, some kind of a oh I can't some kind of chemical let's call it a pheromone even though that's not the word that the doctor used mm -hmm. um, and when those are popped they serve as an alert an alarm to the rest of the fish in the area the rest of the shoal that something is not right. I've, I've had some type of manual disruption to my body. I've, I've been bitten or grabbed or something and it popped these, these cells. So when I catch one, um, uh, Dr. Gidmark suggested I should rinse my hands, my waders, my net, my fly. I should rinse everything off and then I should probably move to the next school of fish before, uh, because these fish have, he said they won't flee from this stuff being in the water, but they'll become very inactive and very vigilant. And so, um, Andy said, if you have it on your waders and then you go upstream and get in and it comes off your waders, you're going to alert that school of fish that, uh, that something's going on. So, you know, yeah. um, so I've, I've, I've learned to rinse my stuff, uh, and, and, and move on. Um, you know, we've, you've probably seen this behavior in carp. They, yep. we used to refer to it as soft spooked and hard spooked. A hard spooked fish is running for its life, but you get them where they're kind of soft spooked, where like, 
Okay, they stopped eating. They kind of drifted down into a little bit deeper water, but he's still there. But he doesn't seem free. But he he doesn't seem right. Well, yep. that soft spooking is the what their reaction to that to that pheromone is. It's to go deeper, to become motion less, uh, uh, to move less, to start to become vigilant and alert. Take less, yeah, take less risks. Just exactly, yeah. something's not right. So take less risk. Yeah. So. Um, uh, I, I, I learned that they not only have eardrums, obviously they have ears, but they have a very unique thing in fish called a Weberian apparatus. And a Weberian apparatus is a filament that connects their eardrum to their freaking swim bladder. So these suckers have taken their ears and plugged them into an amplifier. Um, yeah, isn't that crazy? And so, you know, if you imagine that, you know, uh, uh, how much more vibration the swim bladder can pick up than just your ear, just a regular eardrum, they have a very keen sense of, of hearing, which is why you can't step on that twig mm. or the sound of gravel crunching. Yeah. Can, uh, I've experienced that. I thought, surely that can't be real. Like we were like 25, 30 meters away from this, this big carp up in the shallows. And we're stalking in on it, and and where we were stalking in, it changed from sand to gravel, um, and this was this was well above the water level. And the moment we stepped foot on the gravel, that carp flinched, and we headed to deeper water. And we're like, did that just happen? Was that because of us? Like, did a bird fly over, or or what? But you know, it's incredible that you just you told me that. It's like a light bulb moment. Yeah, that's exact. That's exactly why he he probably could. Most fish wouldn't have been able to hear that, but he's yeah. got. He's got a he's got his his uh, his eardrum directly plugged into his swim bladder, and uh, all of these things, by the way, um, are part of why they're also so successful as an introduced species, right? And they they have an what Doctor Gidmark referred to, I believe the quote is, an an incredible arsenal of sensory perceptions. Mm. Um, and so when you start adding all that stuff up, they've got a sense of smell. They can smell. He said that you would equate their sense of smell to something like uh, how it works with a shark in that, um, you know, uh, if, if the current's moving the taste of food in the right or the smell of food in the right direction, that it could be up to a half mile away that they may be, be picking up that, that uh uh, that sense of smell, I think that works against me. I, I had a friend who chewed tobacco, and if he put in a new dip and then handled his fly, he, he would get refusals. Um, and I think that 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 taste, that sense of taste and smell, was something he wasn't he wasn't as aware just how keen that 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 can be for the for the fish. Um, uh, they have. Um, uh, two sets of lateral lines. So where a fish has a lateral line on one side and a lateral line on the other to detect pressure changes, carp have two lateral lines on each side, um, which is very strange, but it cha- it helps them understand the pressure changes. Um, and then la- the last thing he taught me, or one of the last things he taught me was they're what we would call, so it's difficult. Okay, how do we put this? Intelligence is very hard to measure in animals, right? Because what is smart? We don't know how to even measure that. But one of the ways that they do that, that they try to measure, or or one of the ways they shortcut that is they think about animals in terms of their trainability. So how well can they be taught that certain stimulus will, uh, um, uh, will be followed by either reward or, or negative, uh, some type of negative uh, outcome, 
and change their behavior. And that's one of the ways they try to quantify intelligence. Mm. The two that he told me about was one researcher who taught his common carp to distinguish between jazz and classical music. He would play classical music and feed the fish, and he'd play jazz music and not feed the fish. And eventually, in not too long, the carp would respond to classical music by going over to where they get fed and preparing to eat, but the jazz music, when they heard the jazz music, they just keep going about their business. Well, that that's amazing. That that really tells me that the carp is uh, much more similar to humans because not many people like jazz music either. You know, I mean, why don't they just play the right notes? I mean, come on. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. His uh, and he and and that carp were also trained to respond to what they call noxious stimuli, which is that um, noxious stimuli is. We don't know if fish feel pain the way we feel pain, so they don't want to call it pain because they don't know what they're experiencing. But that whereas uh, trout, for example, uh, do not begin, they do not learn to avoid behavior that causes them not, that, that would be considered a noxious stimuli, that in us would cause pain, like getting poked in the lip. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't avoid the behavior that causes that getting poked in the lip. Carp do learn to avoid that. In other words, if you go pound the same population of fish over and over, this is a fish that can learn classical music means food and can learn that hey, every time I eat that, every time I eat that certain thing, it causes me pain in my face, and uh, and that's why the that's one of the reasons why if you pound the same population over and over, um, they will become uh, um, much more difficult to catch, much more wary. I have a local stream that I beat the hell out of. And they're almost impossible to catch those fish now. Um, mm. the, the sound of gravel freaks them out. Uh, I don't. I have to invent new flies before I can even even hope to get an eat. Um, I've beat on those fish too much, and uh, um, so they're 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 a really. I mean, from a physiological standpoint, they're a really well attuned uh, to being make to making themselves difficult uh, to catch, and mm. uh, and that's another reason why. It's a challenge. Now, for everybody I tell that to, I run into somebody who comes up and says, not on my lake. They're so stupid. They run right into my kayak and da-da-da. Yeah, that's right. They, they also become accustomed to things that uh, and, and realize they're not a threat and stop avoiding them. But a wild carp will be a cu- not accustomed to something overhead or will will believe that something overhead is you know potentially dangerous and will flee from it, right? Mm-hmm. So... It's a they're 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 definitely worthy from a physical standpoint. Not to mention they're strong and fast and you know. They, well, I'll tell you something body. that's interesting over here. Like as you know, we're legally required to um, euthanize carp as they come out of the water in, in our state, at least. Um, those fish technically only ever get caught once. You know, oh, that's a good at, point. And they and they they are still extremely difficult. Now, some of the points you point out with the physiology, I can't remember what you said in regards to the balloons that release, again, for lack of a better term, a pheromone, you know, that yep. um, they will point out to the other, other fish there that, that there's something wrong, you know, to, to, to take less risk. But, you know, like, and, and with the amount of, um, uh, like, uh, olfactory sensors, because, like, again, you like, like into to a, sh- a shark, um, you know, that would disperse through, like, a, a pond as opposed to, like, pu- like a, getting that parts per million out through a lake you know those those fish in the rivers for fish that get caught once they it's 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 like all you need to do is just get a rejection from one 
and then yes. and then you know you may as well walk away. I've also noticed that you know those fish can be quite probably along the lines of their educate ability to be educated that you can keep um, bombing them, you know, and they and they'll just keep swimming on the fly. It's like they're aware you're there. They're aware of the limitations of 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 you as a predator. Um, I'm not. This is a wild assumption. Obviously, I can't know this for sure, but it's like they're aware of that you can't do any more than that. Um, and they just they just know what your fly is. They know it's no, it's not real, even though they haven't even put it in their mouth. You know, it's just um, it they've like it's like one fish rejects it, rejected it. You've got to move to another hole. You know, and that's, yeah. that's what it seems like. And you know, I guess it carries weight to what you're saying there because it isn't. It is interesting, isn't it? That you know, in a, in a country where they where they technically only get caught once. Um, yeah, they um, they they're just as they just they can be just as smart like they've been pinned a hundred times. That's crazy, and, and you know one of the other uh, uh, one of the things that Doctor Gibmark mentioned to me was they have a tongue. He referred to it as a minnow tongue. He said that's not a technical term. Um, their tongue is so. I want you to picture like, you remember when you were a kid and you'd get that pink bubble gum, you put like 17 pieces of it in your mouth and you get like a blob of, of bubble gum, big blob of bubble gum. That's kind of what their tongue is like. And, and if you take and took and stuck your finger through that bubble up, it, it, you know, through that bubble gum, it would, it would, um, um, you know, you could, you could make a, a specific part of it uh, push up. Their tongues are prehensile. So what happens is that's how their tongue is. Imagine that that's what's fixed to the bottom of their mouth. It's just a blob of bubble gum with somebody's finger that can poke straight up out of it. So they take in a bunch of stuff into their mouth. And they've got two rocks, two sticks, uh, three nymphs, uh, and, and three nymphs in there. Their tongue will then, uh, uh, like a finger poking up through it, will pin those three different nymphs, three different fingers, boop, boop, boop. Will pin those those three um, nymphs to the roof of their mouth, and then they will eject everything else. And they'll do that on the sense of taste. And he told me it takes them about a half a second to wow. bring it in, taste everything, their tongue to decide what to pin to the roof of the mouth to keep in there, what to eject, and then to you know swallow whatever they're eating. So when your fly is in front of that fish. We around here, at least, have a lot of times I think that that fly is getting taken in and, re and ejected faster than we're recognizing that it was eaten. Mm. And they're very accustomed to picking up stuff that's not food. And so they're picking it up. They're making a determination. They're spitting it out. Their tongue is manufactured. I mean, their tongue is built to sort out food items from non-food items and to allow the non-food items to be ejected. And so what those fish that, that I have on my river very well may be doing to me is I may have two or three of them that pick a fly up, put it back down and swim away. And I never realize I got an eat, but they are picking up that sense of taste. They're really recognizing something's not right. Tastes like steel or who knows. And then they start to get real weird. And I, and as far as I know, I never stuck that fish. So when I show them that fly a second time, the fact that they're rejecting it before it ever goes in their mouth maybe shouldn't be all that surprising because they may have already had it in their mouth at one point. Mm. Um, so I'm I'm very, very quick to put the fly out. If that fish is up where I think it ate the, the, the fly or it's up there where it could have eaten the fly. Oh, they can also, because they use that sense of suction, they can be picking a fly up from, you know, six inches away. And, and, or, and so... You, you may think the fish isn't to your fly yet. It may have already picked it up, put it down, or picked it up, decided it wasn't food, and put it back down 
and, and before it started to move on. So I'm lifting my fly rod a lot. I'll pick it up to like a, if that flies up, that fish is up there. I'll set the hook, and if the fish isn't there, I just go right into my back cast and and put the try to put the fly back down in front of it, and I'll right. do that over and over, um, uh, because uh, they're, they're picking sorry, things up down a lot more a lot more readily, I think, than we're than we know. Mm. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's just um, it, it what you're saying there would lend again a lot of weight to some observations, I suppose, and um, and one is I very rarely see. I mean, yours might be different, but in my experience, um, I very rarely see a deep hooked carp. They're always majority in the lip, you know, and I'm wondering if that fly has gone in and we're not fast enough to <clears throat> set the hook on the way in. It's only on the way out that we're, 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 that, we're, um, that we're setting the hook. You know, I, I wonder, you know, in that circumstance, you know, and not that's that that's really going to advantage us other. Sorry, Ron. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I got excited. That is a great observation. Uh, now that I think about it, I... You know, I've caught thousands of carp. I don't think I've ever deep hooked one. Mm. Um, they're all in the lip. And so I, 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 they're certainly not mistaking it for food once it's in their mouth and trying to swallow it. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Uh, and and so you're right. I'm. We may very well be either hooking them just as it goes in their mouth or just as it's coming out. Uh, but But certainly not a situation where they're picking it up, putting it in their mouth. And then taking it any deeper, that's for sure. Yeah, you yeah. just never see that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess this leads me on to um, wanting to know the various techniques that, that you're employing. I mean, I'm sure you're not going out and doing the same thing every day. You know, I mean, your fly selection seems varied. Uh, I'm sure you're, 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 the tackle you're using is, is, is varied as well. But techniques, because you're talking about, you actually talked about various scenarios. You find them in lakes, rivers, big, big rivers, small creeks, small lakes. Uh, I'm sure that'll vary, but I guess to not muddy the water, excuse the pun, in regards to that, um, I guess I guess I could ask you to, to explain some of the techniques um, that you would from if there was not a broad range from beginner to advanced in a in a river or a creek for or shallow shallow water um, carp fishing, moving water. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So. First of all, that was well done with the muddy the water thing. That was that was perfect. <laughs> I didn't um, even know I was going to do it. Sometimes magic just happens on this show. <laughs> uh, the uh, there's one technique that is universal and uh, that I that I think is the most important. Um, I'm going to encourage every one of your listeners to go and, and onto YouTube and look up the um, to Google or to go onto YouTube and look up a, a video on what's called the drag and drop presentation drag drag and drop fly carpen is the uh is the maker of that video um there's probably other ones the one by fly carpen is awesome in that he's got underwater footage and slow motion and all that stuff um the drag and drop is a presentation of the fly that is unique to fly carpen that, that was developed in 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 uh by fly carpers and the the, the way we do this is if you picture a fish that is tailing, right, head down, tail up, and it's quartering, let's say it's quartering, um, it's coming towards me and to my right, right? So it's quartering uh, uh, towards me to the right. I will make my cast, I will try to make my fly land on the water maybe three or four feet past that fish and maybe a little bit in front of it. But that's where I want it to hit the water. Now, the minute that fly hits the water, 
uh, the second it hits the water, I'm lifting my rod up and I'm trying to keep the fly on the surface. I'm skittering the fly across the surface of the water rather than letting it sink to the bottom. Mm. And I'm going to do that until I can drag it back. And I can even steer it at that point. If I've cast a little behind the fish or a little in front of the fish, I can steer it from left to right, how I point my rod tip. And I'm skittering across until that fly is directly above the dinner plate of my fish, where I want that fly to be presented to the fish, at which point I'm immediately lowering my rod tip and I'm letting, then I let the fly fall straight through the water column in front of that fish. Mm. So that's a tough description, which is why I'm going to encourage your people to YouTube it. But the idea is if you cast the fly right where you want it to be, it's going to land too close to the fish and spook them. And if you cast the fly past them and you drag it back across the bottom, you get a lot of spooked fish because they're not accustomed to their prey coming at them. Mm. So, and they don't chase flies. So it's difficult to cast way in front of them and then strip it away from them. So the idea is I want that thing falling through the water column down onto the bottom in front of them, because that's where a lot of their prey item flees to hide. It's trying to bury itself in the bottom, in the benthos. It's trying to get buried <laughs> in all the junk in the bottom and get out of the way of this fish. So I cast past it. I lift my fly. I keep my fly rod up, and I lift that, and I drag that fly across the surface, skitter it across the surface, and then I drop my, my rod tip and let the fly fall directly in front of the fish. And oftentimes, they'll rise up off the bottom and grab it, or they'll rush forward a little bit and grab it. They'll try to catch that fly before it gets to the bottom. Mm. And it's the only way I've ever seen of kind of inducing a reaction strike from a carp. It makes it much more visual uh, uh, cue that they've eaten. And, um, and it's, a, it's a really nice way to present a fly that, uh, that's right, in, right where you want it without having to cast right on top of the fish. It's really yeah. effective. It, it's very similar to what is a popular technique in the areas that I fish for, for carp, if you like. But what what you what and like what you're saying like the antithesis of you saying or what you're saying if you like about um you know like casting at them like you know what you'd do for say I don't know some some saltwater species not all of them I mean some of them are uh, like what you're describing there actually sounds a lot like um how some of the guys I know fish for permit they like to see it they like to get the the fish to um see the crab land on the bottom you know and mm. um. Because, like again, like um, those 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 fish are going to look for solace or, or or cover in on the bottom, and they're obviously going to be vulnerable in the midwater column. But um, you know, like I was saying, the antithesis of that would be, you know, like say, I don't know, like a like a a small fly with like big bomb eyes, you know, and and I guess even even more to magnify that that because you're not going to be able to drag and drop with a with a large heavy fly. I mean, the the fly is going to drag across the bottom, particularly if you're in shallow water. Magnify that again in still water. Magnify that again with with a with a boat. Say, you know, like it's um, it's a sort of thing. This is a sort of technique that you're going to want to um, um, you know, employ like a, a light a light fly, like a you know, like a like a, a swimming damsel or something like that, I guess. And you're gonna you're gonna want it's this situation. You're gonna want these fish to to rise to it as opposed to find it off the bottom. Is that 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 sort of correct in saying? Because I mean, you're talking about a light fly that you're wanting to sort of like you want a fish to see it head towards the bottom, but give it enough time to see it rather than it plummeting like a stone. And, yeah. and, and I guess the, the thing that ties us all together. And the question is that, you know, are you wanting to this to, um, uh, get picked up off the bottom or, or get eaten as it's falling? So 
I'm looking when I'm tying my flies. That is a, a, a very very well thought out question. In that, when when I'm tying my flies, I'm um, or when I'm choosing a fly, I guess um, the buoyancy of the fly, how quickly it it falls, is probably the most one of the most critical factors. So if I'm trying to catch fish mid column and I want a neutrally buoyant fly like a damsel with you know dumbbell not dumbbell eyes like. Uh, um, bead chain eyes uh, and it's, you know, relatively yeah. well dre uh, dressed um, yep. so that it, it sinks super slow and I can swim it in front of the fish even for tailing fish I'm tying flies that s have a sink rate of like maybe a foot per second um, which doesn't seem I mean if you think about you know 1001 to fall to fall a foot it means I can do that drag and drop cast and drop it and I can watch the fly fall through the column. It's not just, like you say, just dive bombing down. Mm. Because as it does that, I want to give the fish time to recognize that fly and then either either tilt up and try to grab it before it hits the bottom or or move up on that fly uh, uh, right as it hits the bottom. If it's mm. sitting on the bottom before they get to it, it doesn't look like or smell like or taste like food to them. It's just That's another thing on the bottom. Yeah, you know? that's what I'm, that's what I want to ask you there. Like, what you know, that's that's interesting. You should say that because that's been my experience as well. Like, uh, we were speaking yesterday about uh, how long you were, you were saying. I mean, you said in the podcast today how long it took you to finally crack a, a, a somewhat of a code. I I did the same thing. I kept approaching it like um like a saltwater fish, like a, a golden trevally or something like that, or um you know something that lives on the flats where you would expect it to be making contact with the bottom and have the fish chase it down. Um, yep. You know, to to finally seeing through, um, and I'll give him a shout. My, my friend Andy Bolch, who who put us on to uh, a great technique, and I've fished with other guys who've done the same thing, and it sounds like you do the same thing as well. What is it with these fish that um, seemingly will hunt something down that they've picked up off the bottom? Because what we've talked about with the physiology and what we learnt so far in this show and what we know is that unless there's some sort of sense, sort of stimulant there. They're not going to find it. I mean, like they're they're they're, they're yep. way their eyes eyes are, and I mean, unless there's some sort of movement there or some sort of stimulus there where they're going to pick up vibrations or, or scent, it looks like like that would be um, the hardest way to catch them, as opposed to getting a reaction for them to recognise that thing is moving, that thing is food, um, and and they probably um, preference that reaction over their other senses before they've made it realise they've made a mistake. Does that sound exactly. about right? Yeah. It, that's, a, that's exactly how I would think about it is that, so you got something that eats or that identifies food with its sense of taste and smell, mm. and you're trying to get it to, to eat something that doesn't taste or smell right. So you're trying to rely on tricking its sense of vision. Mm. So A, it better look like whatever the hell it is they're eating um, because it doesn't taste or smell like it. So it better look like whatever it is they're eating. And you're, I agree too, in that it's got to have that right, some kind of action to stimulate their sense of vision. And for me, that falling or or being swam in front of their faces is much more effective than having it just sit on the bottom because because it doesn't taste or smell right, mm. and they're not looking for food on the bottom they're tasting their way along or smelling their way along as they eat mm. so you got to have some type of of movement to them now there are exceptions to this and but even then it's still visual but there are places where you can strip a fly along the bottom and a fish will try to run it down where that's that's the visual cue uh but those places are few and far between in my experience yeah so it, like 
like a still water clear so now the clearer it is like the more muddied it is i guess the the more it'd be uh like you'd be you'd be get that you'd get that scenario you'd have the vibration you'd have, you'd be taking away the eyesight sort of thing you'd be appealing to other other sensory um advantages that the fish has to to, to locate prey whereas uh you know like like you're saying like if we because we started off talking about um you know your, your shallow running streams and i'm guessing that you know like in that scenario where you're sight fishing they're, they're clear anyway right i guess yep. to sort of bring back the parameters yep yep so it's um so when you're when you're looking at um catching catching fish on like uh heavy heavy dumbbell eyes or something like that um you know the hardest i mean that, that's going to be extremely hard to do to drag it across the bottom in in a in a clear water shallow scenario um is i guess what we're offering the advice to to people to think about their approach in in that respect i guess Um, yes and along with that along with that is uh uh, i should also be real clear with people i'm tying flies that are the size of my thumbnail or smaller yeah i'm I'm fishing 10 eights and tens maybe 12s yeah Yeah, yeah. and 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 so they don't support large dumbbell eyes and a whole bunch of you know rabbit fur or something like that that gets heavy in mm. there it's a very lightly uh um weighted and and usually heavily dressed relative to its size right so you get a slower sink with some bunch of hackle on it a, a soft, soft hackle or a tail some kind of a of a chenille tail for example or something like that mm. um um so you're right. So then you get that much slower sink rate. It's also so visual to me of a sport that I need that fly not to dive bomb because I oftentimes have to see the fly so that I know when that fish ate the fly. Yeah. Right? yeah. Th- like when they throw their lips at it or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I got to know where that fly is. Yeah. And so, so a small um, uh, flies, John, and I've used this technique here quite a bit. I should maybe do more. John Montana uh, is a, a really prominent fly angler out on, in, in uh, Washington State, Oregon, Washington State and Oregon, the fishes of the Columbia River. And um, he fishes two flies. And he puts like a red San Juan worm. And then about 18 inches below that, he ties a, what he calls a Montana hybrid, which is a soft tackle with a red tail. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll throw that rig over the fish and he'll drag it back just like we mentioned. And he likes to, what he calls, split their heads, put a fly on either side of them and uh, make them commit one way or the other. But if you think about it, two things happen when he does that. Uh, A, he's using that red fly as a sighter so he can see where his flies landed, that front fly, that red San Juan worm. But secondly, this is another thing people forget about with carp. Their eyes are on the sides of their heads, which means they have a cone-shaped blind spot right in front of their face. Um, because they can only see, they're seeing out of one side and out of the other side, and their vision doesn't cross until about six inches in front of their face. So you put a fly right in front of that fish, can't see it. When John splits their heads, he's putting two piece, one, uh, putting a piece, he's putting a, a presentation in front of each eye basically, you know, or six, six inches in front of the fish still, but it's showing it to each eye. And then they, and then his visual cue is, do they turn their head? If they turn their head one way or another, he thinks he assumes that they turned on one of his flies and he sets the hook. Mm. Um, so when I'm presenting a single fly, I try to keep it to one side of the fish or the other. So it's not in that blind spot where with those fish, those eyes on the side of their head, they can't see what's directly in front of their face very well. I wonder with that, you know, like I guess uh, I'm just thinking back to some of the eats for, for me, 
and I'm not in the thousands like yourself, but uh, they seem to uh, make that like a, they have seemed to have made that decision. Like in that, I wonder when you're talking about that blind spot, if if you were gonna drag and drop and let let that fly slowly sink down, and if you were like, I mean, if you're gonna fluke it that much that it's gonna land drop directly over the top of their head, I wonder if losing that line of sight to them makes them makes them react as well. And it's probably it may be I doubt this, but it may be far enough away for them to only be able to use that sight that the the sense of sight to be able to make that decision before everything else kicks in. You know, it's a, really, it's a really interesting way to think about it. Yeah, that very yeah. well could be that. That very well could be what happens. It also could be that uh, um, that they know they have a blind spot, obviously, and so you know there could be a when you get that sort of reaction grab as the thing's falling um, out of the, they they may want to get at it before it lo- that leaves their field of vision. Uh, it's, mm. it, it, who knows? <clears throat> and then you know, I know that like um, in Lake Michigan. So in where we have the best luck over here with the stripping something along the bottom is places like Lake Michigan or some of these big reservoirs where it's a very sterile environment, real clear water, very sterile environment. There's not a lot of nymphs for them just to forage on or, you know, real soft bottom where they can go dig worms all day and never have to work too much at it. So they've sort of had to adapt to become a little bit more predacious. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and in those instances... Um, when you have that that uh, uh, that that uh, m- uh, more sterile sort of uh, more limiting um, options, then that's when we can get him. I can get him to chase a fly, and even then, you, you're throwing you know uh, a a bait fish in front of them um, and letting them as they approach it, you know, starting to pop it away from them and 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 kind of try to pop it along the bottom like you would a. Like you would a small crab in front of a or a shrimp pattern in front of a bonefish or something like that, um, um, and uh, and and then they can then I think you're getting a visual reaction uh, to that to that eat. Um, but if they if it just lays there on the bottom in front of them, they'll swim right over it because it doesn't look right, it doesn't taste right, it doesn't smell yeah. right. You know? It's that motion that's got to got to kind of uh, create the um, uh, the reaction from the fish. I would imagine there'd be a, a certain amount of um, uh, risk assessment. I'm sure they don't have a document that types it out, but <laughs> for fish to, to not have to pick everything up, do you know what I mean? Unless they're unless they're sure, you know, it'd be a certain amount of energy. It could be a missed opportunity that they that they're um, that, that they're probably aware of. You know, like so, I mean, unless, like you said, like if if they're sitting hard on the bottom, um, you know, not not moving, or uh, even if it was moving, I guess it's it, it'll spook them. But if there's no other reason, other like they kind of have to assess whether it's real to make it's worth the effort just to, to pick it up. I know you said earlier that they're accustomed to picking up foreign material, but I mean, they're they're probably accustomed to picking up foreign material not as a random searching method, like just just like a vacuum cleaner sucking stuff up. They've probably seen something or, or smelt something and picked it up with something that they're already aware that is food. But when you've got a fly that's got all these foreign smells to it that doesn't smell real or or no scent to it at all, there's got to be another reason for them to to attack essentially. I, 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 yes, and I also think, you know, we have, so where there's riches and they can just sort of mill along and eat instead, mm. um, we have to turn, we have to really change our mindset as we fish for these fish. Most of the fish, in fact, probably all of the fish that we fish for are predators. They're, they are, um, um, uh, and, and most of them are, are some type of, some style of ambush predators. Uh, you know the the musky and the and the bass 
are the most uh, obvious ambush predators. But even even trout in a trout stream are, are predaceous, and they're trying to find a line where they can sit and they can eat. They can grab insects as it goes by, or find an undercut bank where they can hide and then take a swipe at small bait fish as it comes by or whatever. They're predaceous. Mm. So it's like now carp. When they're in that grazing mode where things are really rich bottomed and they can just work along and eat stuff, they're less like a lion and more like a buffalo or a, a, a cow, mm. right? And they're just kind of eating the grass that's in front of them and it's abundant. They're not going to chase down a, 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 a tuft of grass that's stripped in front of their face. They're surrounded <laughs> by it, right? <laughs> yeah. They're just going to keep grazing on that. And yeah. so... So you have to uh, you have to change your presentation mindset from what would I do to get a lion to chase a gazelle? That's one thing, but that ain't what we're doing here. Now you got to think, okay, what would I do to get a um, uh, to get a, a, a water buffalo to eat the right chunk of vegetation that I'm presenting to him? It's not quite that extreme, but it's it's relate. There's a, it's related there when they're in a really food rich environment where they can just graze all day on small organisms. They're not chasing your big organism that runs from them because why would expend the why expend the calories? That's a great analogy, actually. It's uh, when you think of it like that. Yeah, feeding a fly to a, a buffalo feeding on grass, quite difficult. That's for sure. <laughs> What's it going to yeah. take? You kind of got to put just put it in their way. I guess you'd have yeah. to. That'd be the only way to do it. Yeah, yeah, and, and and it's not and like I said with the you know the 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 analogy is a little bit extreme because they they will you know a carp will eat uh, you know small nymphs and stuff that are trying to flee from them so there there's a little bit there but but mm -hmm. why chase anything many farther than you have to especially if you're surrounded by a bunch of them in a real rich environment if mm -hmm. you're on a clam bed in in the Columbia River you are surrounded by clams. So you're not chasing a big crayfish that's stripped away from you. You're going to keep your face down and keep eating eating clams uh, um, all day. And that's sort of how the carp end up reacting. So now all of this talk about how difficult these damn things are and like trying to feed a buffalo grass and all that stuff. <laughs> I don't want to talk anybody out of the idea that they're catchable. It's just you got to change your mindset. You got to you got you have to tune your approach to to realizing, you know, that's what you're tr that's what you're trying to do here, and it's a little bit different than it is to try to get a, um, uh, you know, a, a pike to eat a pike fly or a bonefish to eat a shrimp that's fleeing or a, or a, um, you know, a, a snook to, to eat uh, um, something thrown at it in the mangroves or something like that. Well, it's just a matter of understanding their, their habits, their physiology, and, um, and tailoring your approach to that, really, at the end of the day. But, yeah. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I don't think you would ever put anyone off like uh, carp fishing from from what we've heard here i think if anything people who have experienced it and experienced it in a difficult way could probably listen to this podcast and reflect on their own experience and go uh-huh well that would probably explain that you know like as long as as long as uh, i mean we spoke about this yesterday in in, in what we talk about on this show you know as long as people if people come away with it with a donut from their fishing uh you know like they're really they truly are defeated if they can't um, build on that experience to, to further their progress into the future. And if you've got a donut and you're lost as to which way to turn and you're listening to this podcast and you could probably relate to, to some of these um, behaviors that you've observed on the water, because I mean, that's, that's the one thing you sometimes can take away if you can't get a grip and grin shot really is just your observations. And, um, yeah, if, you, 
if you don't get your butt kicked, if you're not getting your butt handed to you when you're carp fishing every now and again, you're not doing it hard enough. Yeah. Um, and then I go out and get, I go out and get donuts for sure. And, uh, uh, you know, I'll get, a, a, I'll pick the wrong flat on the wrong day. And for some reason there won't, you know, there'll be four fish on it all day and I'll get four shots and I'll come up blank. And, um, yeah. it just happens sometimes, but, uh, um, but what I, what I try to do is, is, is a lot like what you just mentioned, Chris, which is, you know, I try to think about, okay, um, what did I miss? What was I not, what, what, what was I not recognizing? Did I, did I go in with this preconception that they're going to be eating this and that's what I threw at these fish? Did I, uh, were my presentation bad? Was I not, uh, stealthy enough? You know, what was happening that, um made this whole thing not work um and uh and you know that then some of the time the fish just beat you and shit that happens on every fish i've ever fished for and yeah. some fish just beat you and and then you, you got the you got the added uh um complication for for those of you who are listening who haven't done a lot of saltwater fishing you get the added complication that it's a lot like saltwater fishing in as much as when you are trout fishing in a river the one thing you know for sure is that there are trout. There, you know where those fish are. They're in that river. There, there are fish there. You, ha you can go to a flat when you're saltwater fishing, and there just ain't no fish. That's just what happens. Some reason they're not on that flat. Mm -hmm. And with the carpets, the same way. You know, it, it is. Um, uh, they, they, they might be there, and they might not be there. And if they're not there, I mean, they're just not there. And, and, and that seems um, uh, obvious, but uh, when, we, when we're trout fishing in a river, we have the opportunity to, we have, the fish are confined, right? We know that there's fish probably in this very pool, and I'm going to show them different flies, and I'm going to be careful and stay back, and I'm going to switch flies and get more shots and keep trying until I figure this out. You're not going to get that opportunity with flats fish nearly as much because a flat can be empty. Mm. And, and so... You know, you just got to put that also in your in your uh, um, bag of excuses when you go out after these fish to remember that sometimes it just doesn't happen when you're fishing for for, for fish that way. You know, do, I mean, you, shit, you got to uh, the salt, I'm sure. Oh, for sure, for sure. I wanted to ask you something. I, I, we are drifting off the time, so I I I I, I want to ask this, but um, I know it could be a big lengthy subject. But uh, in regards to um, their their breeding cycle. Um, how much do you know about that, and um, and what what how have you found they feed around that time? Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, okay, I'll keep this brief because I could go on forever and ever and ever. Um, it is uh, regulated by both uh, water temperature and uh, photo period. So right. photo period is how long is your daylight, um, mm. and um, they can oftentimes they will. Uh, spawn more than once in a year if the water temperature falls back through the right temperature range. So in other words, you can have a warm-up and the spawn will turn on and they'll have a spawn. And then if for some odd reason, you know, in the next couple of weeks, uh, the water, the temperature drops and the water temperature falls back through that appropriate range, you can get a second spawn or you might get one in the fall, um, uh, which is unusual for fish. It's probably part of why also they... Uh, um, introduced so well is that they're, um, they're, it's a little easier for them to spawn than it is a lot of other fish. Mm. They're what's called a broadcast spawner. 
So, you know, trout build reds, uh, bass build beds, um, pike and muskie, they, they, uh, their um, eggs are sticky, so they spawn in, uh, um, in, in vegetation to, to make sure that, that their eggs are stuck on vegetation, whereas carp are broadcasting. So they'll get in big groups in the shallows, and it looks like a free-for-all up there. It's, it's a giant fish orgy. Um, as the big females will swim real fast and tearing it up, water spraying everywhere, and they're and they're and they're expelling eggs when they do that. And then you got two or three males following her, and they're expelling milt, and it's all getting mixed up behind them. And then those those eggs free float, and um, and they free float throughout the the system, and then they hatch into small um, uh, uh, minnows. They're they're minnow species. And then they quickly, one of the great pieces of research out of South Dakota State University, actually, that, that I read was carp uh, as a minnow, right, a minnow species. Um, after they become introduced to an ecosystem, it takes very, very short amount of time before they become the number one prey base for your uh, game fish mm. um, because they're minnows. And that's what, you know, that's what a lot of your uh, sport fish eat. Uh, walleye around here, a big sport fish, pike, bass, they're eating minnows. Sure. And, um um, so anyway, but they're broadcast that way. So you don't see them, the, the, the small ones in like big schools or anything like that. It's all broadcast out. In terms of their feeding at that time, yep. the actual spawning fish are not eating. Not any more than if I walked into your bedroom when you were in the middle of uh, of spawning and said, hey, I got a hamburger for <laughs> Uh, they, they they react the same way you would, right? They tell me to get the hell out of there. I prefer um, to word it as uh, offloading genetic information. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, um, but let's please continue. But they do, what, and what will happen is because they're in big groups, uh, I love to find them spawning because I'll go to the edges of those spawning uh, areas where they're making all that ruckus. I'll go and work the, the edges and the fish will peel off out of the spawn and move out there to feed and rest. And those are very, very targetable fish. Okay. And it's a really good chance to get a shot at a big female um, that you may not see up on the flats very frequently throughout the course of the year because she just tends to stay deeper because, you know, she weighs 30 pounds. Yep. Uh, um, you will find them in the shallows that time of year. Um, so the spawning fish can be, uh, finding the spawners is a good way to locate large groups of big fish and then fishing the edges is where you're going to find the fish that are actually in, in exhibiting some feeding behavior and are catchable. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Cause, or cause or they'll, just, they'll just sit up, you know, because the, there's three major behaviors you have with, with carp yeah. and four and three of them, they're not eating and you're just screwed. So if you see them jumping like that, you can't blind cast to a jumping fish and try to catch it. It's clearing the mud and silt out of its gills, right. and it's feeding on the bottom. Um, but unless you can see it feeding on the bottom, it's really difficult to catch. So people will see jumping fish and want to cast to them, but they're not chasing bait fish or anything. They're clearing out their gills and going back to the bottom and tailing. So you kind of want to just leave those fish alone. Mm. They will be sunning fish that will come up to the surface and just sort of hang motionless and let that sun beat on them all those fish are doing is letting the they're cold-blooded right so their metabolism is based on their body temperature and so they're letting the sun warm them up so that they can metabolize the food they've eaten faster so they're not feeding either so if you've got sunning fish that are motionless it's very 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 difficult to get any 
The third behavior is the spawn, and if they're actively spawning, they are not eating. They're busy offloading genetic information. Um, <laughs> and, and, and but then and then the fourth behavior that you see is you know feeding behavior, and that's where they're tailing or they're slowly picking along the bottom or doing something um, that that indicates that they're feeding. And I will walk past fish that are sunning or jumping or spawning. Because they're just they're just a waste of time. They'll eat up your day trying to get an eat out of those. You should walk past those to try to get to fish that are actively exhibiting some type of feeding behavior. Okay, there's something I, I wanted to share, an observation, which um, there might be the difference between their environment where they live. But I've seen them do that, like their spawning behavior, like in groups of you know seven or eight, nine sometimes, maybe ten, um, in rivers, but in in lakes. I, I, I've never seen them do it in, in deep water. I uh, saw shallow water. They do it in deep water. Like I can be traversing from one bank to another. Like I'll, in, in, the, in one particular lake that I fish, I'll sometimes put a boat in there. I'll use a boat to get from one bank to the other and walk the bank. But in, in, in uh, you know, going from one point to the other, I'll see a congregation of where these fish will be jumping. So I'll head over there. I'll just put the, the, fish, the hummingbird on the, the sounder and there'll be just a mass of fish uh, and like deep, you know, like I'm, I'm assuming that that they're breeding. Like if they're a broadcast breed, like you're saying, I'm wondering if that's what's happening on. And I'm wondering, have you seen like that in lakes? Have you seen them in the shallows in lakes, or is it, uh, or is it? Does that does that make sense to what I'm seeing to you as well? What, make, what you're saying is absolutely makes sense. And they could be spawning down there, being broadcast spawners. They could spawn in any depth of water. And um, here, and I don't. Uh, even the still water fish, even the lake fish will get in the shallows to, for their spawn. Mm. Um, and so I just saw them yesterday, actually, in a, on a still water area. They were all pushed up into, you know, within feet of the bank, splashing around and causing a ruckus. Um, but, uh, but that doesn't mean they're not also doing it in deep water. And it doesn't, and, and, and I look, there's a very narrow window of time when we see spawners in the spring. And so, it could be that there are plenty of places that I'm not uh, uh, where they are doing it in deep water, and I'm just and I just know that there are somewhere where they where they're up in the shallows. They're very adaptable, mm. and um, so I wouldn't be surprised if you think about it as a as a biological adaptation. It would make a hell of a lot of sense to stay out of the shallows if you're going to make a ruckus because you're exposed to predation up there. I mean, yeah. from the stuff we've got, you know, we got coyotes and wolves and foxes and and uh, raccoons and all kinds of pr predators besides the birds and the humans that can get at you when you're making a ruckus in shallow water. So it would make sense to stay out in deeper water at that point. But we do see it here some of the time. We see the the spawning, but not every year. You know, which is interesting. Now that you say that, I'm guessing that there are times when they're spawning in deep water because because there are lakes I've never seen them spawn in, and certainly they are. Yeah. Uh, I just, I've never seen it. Must be oh, a deep one. Yeah, I'd imagine that would be the time you'd probably use a floating line and a big heavy fly while you're in a boat. You could probably bomb those schools if that floats yes. your boat. But I mean, to me, carp are all sight fishing. I'm not really interested in that. But um, yeah, it's 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 um it's very interesting. You know that uh, how how adaptable they can be. But it makes sense, like what you're saying. Like in that particular lake, like it's very clear water. Um, there are a lot of a uh, lot of wild, there's a lot of wildlife around. I believe they're a big diet of the local drop bear population as well. And um, wait, wait, the what local what population? Drop bear. Uh, what is that? Have you uh, made the best way to explain it? Have you got Google in front of you? Have you got yeah. a computer in front? Of you? Yeah. Go, just Google drop bear. You'll see. What I mean, it's very, 
unless you're known Australian, it's it's something that the um that the I guess it's a it's not a very big thing they like to broadcast in the tourist population thing, I suppose. Oh, I'm 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 gonna look it up when I can get my phone to work. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So that's that. Like they'll they'll hunt. I mean, they'll they'll walk. They'll get down there and they'll they'll scoop carp up. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Dan. It's it it's uh that's a national joke that one, mate. But um, <laughs> you should see the pictures on the internet. When, oh, I know. You you should have heard the like I did this to the guys on the SBS podcast. I had them going for about a half an hour. They were blown <laughs> away <laughs> that we were actually actually yeah living in amongst these extremely dangerous creatures. You know. It's yeah, a, I got a, it, I got a picture on my phone right now of a koala with fangs. <laughs> <laughs> if you look deeper in it, there's whole websites where people are uh, have built for this reason to just to perpetuate this joke that they're you know they got Wikipedia pages and you know like they're talking about this beast that stands as high as a as a as an adult male that just hunts purely is a carnivorous koala type thing. It's wild. It's it's so much fun. It's, uh, so I apologize, man. I'm just having a bit of fun with you, but yeah. yeah. Uh, no, you got me. I give you that one. <laughs> Another one down. I love it. <laughs> I, I think um, before we roll out of this podcast, Dan, I think a lot of mis- listeners would be pretty disappointed if I didn't ask you um, um, of some of your favorite carp recipes, mate. It's pretty popular in Australia. Oh, carp, carp food recipes? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, um, you know, like, I like to eat the row. The row, yeah, you do like to like because that's pretty popular. We've got a very famous angler in Australia here called uh, Andy Bolch, who um, <laughs> I've heard of him. Does you've it? heard of him, yeah. <laughs> a, a lot of his uh, a lot of his uh, actions probably would have transcended national international waters. I've no doubt in my mind, but he's um, he's quite the aficionado of 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 you know very fresh carp row. And um, is he the one? Is he the one who sent me the Facebook message on carp sashimi? I, that would be him. Yeah, yeah. He does like to <laughs> does like to telegraph this stuff. To anyone who listen, that's for sure. That's how yeah. I met Andy. I got I got a random recipe come through for uh, tempura carp, and um, yeah, I, uh, I I I felt sorry for him and have been friends with him ever since. Yeah, that's not that was that was nice of you. Yeah, I think it was the carp sashimi one he sent me, um, and we've shared row uh, recipes. Although he he likes his really fr- fresher than I like mine. I like to I like to to salt mine a little bit, but uh, that makes sense. Um, yeah. You're, yeah, you sound like uh, a sane person. I think Andy likes it straight from the vent. Well, and then he for fish head, he uses those heads for you know fish head, well, a stew or whatever it is he makes. I don't know what he makes, man. He's he's, he's a wild man, that's for sure. He's a big I, fan I, of, of river meat, that's for sure. <laughs> I had I had a a a uh, neighbor um, that was from Russia. And found out I catch carp, and this is a God's honest truth, and was so excited and asked me to bring him some carp. And I was like, yeah, man, I can bring you some carp. And so I, I got a couple of uh, four or five pounders, smaller ones, early in the spring when it was cold water. And I, and I uh, uh, brought them home, took the heads off them, gutted them, um, and, uh, and scaled them, and brought the fish over to him. And he was pissed. Because he wanted the head left on it. Because when you bake carp, according to this Russian neighbor of mine, the heat doesn't distribute right if you don't have the head still on it. So I didn't. He didn't take those. But the next two I caught, he had me. I just gutted them and brought them over with the head on, and they stuffed them and baked them. <laughs> That's wild. That's so the gnarly. The entire neighborhood stunk like carp, man. I'm telling you, that was a. 
terrible, terrible idea, but he was excited. Oh, it's funny you should say that. The first time I went to find Andy's house, he said, the GPS doesn't work here, but just open the window of your car. You'll, you'll tell where we are. It's, uh... <laughs> so it's funny you should say. Actually, I'm noticing a bit of a parallel there between um, Russian and Bolch, like Bosch. Bolch, I'm guessing. I, I didn't realize he was Russian. It's, he uh, might be Russian. It could be Russian. <laughs> it's, it's wild. Hey, um, I want to let the listeners know as well, Dan, before we go, that um, you told us that you're about to start up a, a, a podcast yourself, yeah? Yeah, right. So one of the, one of the uh, places I write for is a, a site called Gink Gasoline, which is a really well done uh, website that has uh, content, new content every day, um, videos and articles and all kinds of stuff from anglers, fly anglers all over the country. And, and I do a lot of work with, the, with those two guys, uh, with, to the two guys who own it. And we're launching a podcast. Um, uh, it's called Tales, the Tales on Tales podcast. So Tales, T-A-L-E-S, like stories, Tales on Tales. Um, and uh, um, we'll be we'll be launching very very soon. We've got a number of them in the in the can, as they say in the industry. Now that I'm uh, <laughs> now that I'm uh, <laughs> now that show, I'm show a, business type, yep. right? Show business type, right? Um, and uh, um, and so, you know, the best way to, to find that if you're something people are interested in is um, is to pay attention to the Gink and Gasoline website or um, we have a Tales on Tales podcast uh, Instagram page that uh, has officially no uh, uh, photographs yet. And uh, in fact, it also doesn't doesn't even have a cover photo, but it's uh, it will have one on in the next hour or two. And, and that's where we'll make announcements about the upcoming episodes and things like that. So if people are interested and, and they like podcasts and, and they don't have enough already on their on their docket, that would I would appreciate the followers. That'd be good. I think if anyone's gone, I mean, people will go this far. People usually get this far through our podcast previous to this one. Um, generally are fans of podcasts, that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, it will uh, they have to be, I guess. Otherwise, they're clinically insane. Um <laughs> Um, but I, I need a point because I found it yesterday after talking to you. Like it's, uh, I know you explained it there, but I just want to be clear for people that are looking for it. It's it the pot, the Instagram page is at Tales on Tales podcast in in those words. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, no, that's that's cool. I think um, I, I'm really looking forward to that, Dan. So you're saying that that's uh, you said you say that that's primarily going to be stories, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh there's there's there'll be three of us on there um and uh we've all been lucky enough to be really some more than others actually uh uh very deeply involved in the fly fishing world for a long time and have made some really interesting contacts with well-known anglers and things like that and so so the idea is um um to have the podcast be uh, a lot of of um um uh, both informative and educational, or excuse me, both informative and entertaining, I guess. And the idea is going to be that there'll be a lot of stories. It'll be a lot of story-based uh, stuff um, uh, b- between uh, um, Lewis, who has, has spent a ton of time for years in the Bahamas and 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 uh, um, all down Central America, and 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 some of the people that he's known and things that he's experienced and. And then Justin, who's who's out of Atlanta and done a done a bunch of incredible stuff. And then some of the stuff I've got to do, we just ended up with a lot of people, with a lot of good fishing stories. And so it'll be, uh, um, it'll revolve around that idea. Oh, cool! That's um, that's really great. I think the more fly fishing podcasts we have in the uh, pod universe, the uh, the better off we're all going to be. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Particularly when it's sharing great information, I think mm. we all benefit with um, with information sharing like that. 
Mm. Dan, did we uh, get you to shout out your Instagram page? Yeah, my Instagram is is uh, uh, DC Fraser. That's uh, uh, Daniel Curtis Fraser. DC Fraser. Um, and then you know, I appreciate the follows. That's a good place to see any stuff I got coming up or what's coming out. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and or you could find me on Facebook, Dan Fraser. That's Fraser spelled just like Fraser Crane. Yeah, uh, from Cheers. <laughs> yep, yep. That's what yeah, I was just about to reiterate that one in there. Just like the dude from Cheers. Yep, <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Dan, it's been awesome having you on, man. And uh, you know, like uh, as Voltsy would know, I've been wanting to um have make this show happen for a very long time, and um. Yeah. I just, just uh, in true Australian fashion, just got round to it when I did. But, um, but I'm glad that you were available when you did as well. When, when I did uh, to get round to it, uh, to make contact. And I just want to say thanks for your time. Yeah, guys, I appreciate being on. It's great. I'm sorry I talked so much. We barely heard from Voltsy at all. He, he didn't get <laughs> hardly at all on this episode. <laughs> that usually means you've you've got him captivated, mate. He's yeah, um yeah. and I've been and he's learning, mate. You know, yeah. yeah, one mouth, two ears. That's my my philosophy. Yeah. So, yeah. Twice as much that's listening not, as talking. Yep. That's not a great philosophy when you host a podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I really appreciate it, guys. It's been a great time. All right, Dan, we'll, we'll let you go, dude. And, um, mate, yeah, mate, um, I think anyone who's listening as, as this has just listened to this wealth information that you've kindly shared would be, uh, it would be doing themselves a disservice to look to, to, if they were to look, try to look further into it and not look at your book. That's for sure. The Orvis Guide to Carp Flies. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries, man. All right, we'll talk soon, hey? Thanks, fellas. You've got to lie and you know how to use it.
sell it off for profit. 